Hello, my name is Michelle O'Brien, and I will be having a conversation with Kate Doyle Griffiths for the New York City Trans Oral History Project, in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans-identifying people. It is April 9th, 2016, and this is being recorded on Rugby Road in Dittmas Park, Flatbush, Brooklyn. Hello. Hi. Could you start off and introduce yourself? Sure. Um, I'm Kate Doyle Griffiths. Um, I'm originally from Houston, Texas, but I uh, am a longtime Brooklynite. I've lived here with some exceptions since about uh, 2000 and lived in New York since about 1999. So I'm starting to sort of feel my, my age as a New Yorker in a certain way. Um, I, for most of that time, have been a... a uh, worked as a as a uh, adjunct professor, um, mostly in CUNY and some private schools. But I've also done some other kinds of work and a lot of sort of political activism and um, other kinds of stuff. I don't know. I live with my partner and my daughter and three pets, uh, not very far from here, also in Flatbush. Could I ask you to sit a little closer to the recorder because of all the noise outside? Absolutely. Great. Um, excellent introduction. Uh, what are your preferred gender pronouns or gender pronouns? They, they and them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, tell me about growing up in Houston. Yeah, I think actually growing up in Houston is something that I think about a lot in other contexts. Um, one of the things I think about a lot in both sort of the context where I did my, my uh, anthropology doctoral research, but also in my activism and in my teaching, is I think a lot about the schools that I went to in Houston, Texas. Um, and part of that is because they seem quite, um, seem very normal to me, right? Like whatever school you go to as a kid seems like what school is, but in retrospect, it was sort of this very unique kind of historical moment and moment in the history of like the U.S. Uh, public school system and and really the the consequences of the civil rights movement, of desegregation and so forth, that I think really uh, profoundly shaped my experience, shaped the way that I think in ways that I didn't fully recognize as a kid. Um, and so what I mean by that specifically is that uh, I went to school in Houston, which was one of these big cities in the South, the New South, um, it's quote unquote, in the early 1980s, right? I started kindergarten in uh, 1986. Um, and I went to schools that were uh, magnet schools so instead of kind of busing as the mode of desegregation, Houston took up, was one of the places that took up the magnet model, right, where you either had a vanguard school for the academically supposedly gifted children or an art school for the artistically inclined children, right? And the idea was to have each of these schools at the time were, quote, a third, a third, and a third black, white, and Hispanic um, as a way of kind of combating white flight and of building in academically elite uh, public schools in in Houston. So those are the schools that I went to. I went to one, my elementary school is River Oaks Elementary School in the sort of like what the Upper West Side of Houston is. It's like the, the old longstanding elite, uh, you know, wealthy uh, neighborhood. Um, and that school had previously been the neighborhood school that then had been converted into the magnet school for all the, the supposedly top, the gifted children. Um, so that's where I went to elementary school. I decided that I didn't like being in the school with gifted children at some point and then conceived of a plan to get into the arts track 
Um, and I was, I was a musician. I love music. <laughs> I still do, but I was, I even at, at the time, or I don't know, I don't know, even at the time I thought I was not a very good musician. And so I didn't want to compete fairly with other musicians for the, for the, for the, the art track. And so I picked, uh, I've already played piano and I decided to learn to play the harp because in order to get into, there was a harp program at the middle school, Albert Sidney Johnston middle school. Um, and you didn't have to know how to play the harp. All you had to do was have some piano experience. And I just figured there wasn't going to be that many people competing for the harp spots. And then I could probably carry on into high school and go to the high school for the performing and visual arts as a harpist, um, which was an effective strategy. It was that worked. Uh, and that's where I ended up going to going to high school. Um, and so, uh, I really, really liked my experience, especially in my high school. I liked, I mean, I liked all of my in retrospect. I liked all of them. There's really wonderful things about those schools, but all of those schools, one of the things they had was these kind of like militants that had come out of, uh, either the black liberation struggle or the Chicano liberation struggle and become teachers. And so it was these very kind of like politicized, um, creative, pedagogically enthusiastic teachers who had all this politics that I sort of didn't necessarily recognize as being strange or, or political, but in retrospect, it definitely was like the, the Texas history class I learned, I, I took in fifth grade, uh, was taught as Mexican history. It was taught from a Mexican perspective by a Chicana, um, teacher of mine, Ms. Gonzalez. Um, or I had a, um, what I now know, but and I think then did too, but it's just sort of confusing to think of. I had, uh, my fourth grade teacher, Mr. Ponder, um, was this very, uh, wonderful, uh, gay man who, um, was very gay, like in his, in his life as a teacher and just, you know, his, this is out, I guess, with like 80s elementary school teachers were probably likely to be. And he sort of, he had his whole uh, classroom decorated with like this massive collection of teddy bears. He would sort of like let us do uh, a lot of like what we wanted. Like if you wanted to go read in the corner instead of doing whatever the lesson was, you could, you could do that. And he would have whole days where we just came and hug out with teddy bears and read books all day long. So that was like my idea of, of a great time. And I, I remember thinking that he was a great teacher, that he was really, um, he was very attentive to students, other students that other teachers were not very attentive to. I remember noticing that as a, as a kid. So, um, yeah, it was a cool, it was cool for that reason. And that sort of carried all the way through, um, my high school years. And the other part about it too, was that and this was sort of purported to be the point of these schools. This is the real point I was trying to get to is that they would give children, right? This experience of living in a new racially integrated, racially equal world. Right. And so that it was very much what we would now, what anthropologists me would now say, there was this kind of like colorblind racist, you know, ethos there. Um, but it was also true, right, that we had all kinds of experiences and all kinds of uh, friends across what was this very deep uh, historical divide in, in a place like Houston, Texas. Um, and uh, yeah, it just made me think a lot about, um, as a kid, even think a lot about that history. It's like I can remember in elementary school and in, in middle school and high school sort of uh, talking to other students, talking to other teachers about how these schools came to be, you know, how um, our parents had gone to schools that were that were segregated and that this was very much not imaginable to the kids in my school, 
right? And really, we were aware of, but I think not very in tune with the idea that there were schools, of course, that still exist all, all across Houston that remained very much segregated, right? The biggest and most uh, predominantly black high school in Houston is, was then called Robert E. Lee High School, and I think only recently <laughs> had the name changed, right? And even the, the middle school I just told you about, Albert Sidney Johnston, he was a, he was a Confederate general um, known for having been shot in the leg and blood into his boot, um, losing, I think, uh, a not very important battle with the Civil War. I don't know. But why he got a school named after him, I don't know. As a kid, I, I actually petitioned to change the name because I didn't want it to be named after a Confederate general, particularly a school that was, you know, like this was supposed to be this racially progressive school, but also like almost all the white people in that particular school were, were Jewish because it was in Meyerland. So it was like, here we are all these like black, Latino and Jewish kids going to school at a place named after a Confederate war hero. And I thought that was that was wrong. And my petition didn't go anywhere at the time, I have to say. Um, <laughs> the name remained, but it has since been changed. It has since been changed. And now uh, Albert Sidney Johnston is no more. I think it's called Meyerland Middle School now. Um, so, you know, things change, times change. But uh, what seems strange to me is I think in that moment, I would have thought, you know, I think as we all maybe would have thought or the hope was, right, that this kind of energy of, of integrationism and, and racial equality and solidarity and so forth was going to carry through in some way into the larger society. And I think it's really clear that, that hasn't happened, right? In fact, the reverse has happened. Even these magnet programs have become the kind of affirmative action, quote unquote, like protocol for the racial composition of the schools has been completely eroded. Um, now my high school is, is sponsored by some wealthy family of, of Houston and, and named after them, which was quite controversial among the um, students there at the time. Uh, and all the alumni actually joined alumni groups solely just to, uh, when I found out about this, that's why I joined all the alumni groups so I could register my dissent. Um, but it, you know, it didn't work. So, so, you know, and we've seen this, right? The increasing kind of segregation class and race in, in public schools as public schools have been kind of taken apart. And I think about that a lot when I'm talking to my students and which ones are CUNY students and what kinds of schools they went to and uh, talk to them about it. But yeah, so in that sense, I think Houston at that moment was this very kind of particular place where my school life had a kind of sense of, of newness and hope and, you know, sort of like uh, the born free generation of Houston. Um, and even my parents work lives, like as public sector workers, I think was very similar to that in a lot of ways that they worked with uh, in desegregated environments and, and had kind of like integrated social life. And it really surprised me when I moved to the East Coast. I was expecting to move to the East Coast, find it to be liberal and anti-racist. And I was gonna get out of Texas that I had long heard was, you know, the hellhole of the country. And I got here and I was, I got to tell you guys, I was very let down by the reputation of the East Coast as some sort of bastion of, of justice and freedom. Um, and so that's certainly one trajectory I've been thinking about for a long time. Uh -huh. Tell me about your family. Um, so this isn't my first interview I've ever done with Michelle O'Brien. I've done some other interviews, one of which was about uh, writing that I've done about the family um, with with my friend and comrade Jules Gleason um, and I grew up with a really weird family 
And so I think that's one of the reasons that I'm slightly intellectually and politically obsessed with the idea of the family. Um, and I have been for a long time. That's not a new, <laughs> that's not really a new preoccupation of mine. So the weird part about my family um, is uh, my parents met in Spindletop Unitarian Church in Port Arthur, Texas, when they were 14 and 15 years old. They went to Oberlin together as, as high school sweethearts and then college sweethearts and then got married. And I came onto the scene very much later after kind of medical school and law school had happened. So they were together for a very long time. Um, they moved to Houston uh, at some point and, and had me in Houston. And my dad at that point worked as a lawyer for the, the American Civil Liberties Union. And my mom worked as a doctor, um, actually as, a, as an infectious disease specialist for cancer children with cancer um, at, M at MD Anderson initially. Um, and so that's what they did. They ended up uh, getting divorced uh, when I was five years old and they each remarried when I was six years old. So that's not weird. That's pretty fucking normal for the eighties. But um, the weird part is that they remarried people who had each been married to each other. Yes. Usually it takes people just a second to really catch on to what I says. I'm going to explain it. And there's hand gestures. Sorry. But basically there's two couples. They each had a kid. The couple split up and they switched. Okay. So that's me and my brother. We're step siblings twice. My brother, Sean is one year younger than me and he's my step sibling twice. And we had been friends before we became siblings. I actually taught him to read before he became my sibling, which was one of my, childhood great achievements. I was like teaching him to read was something I was very proud of. Um, so that's a weird family setup. And actually that we ended up living, my brother and I each shared these four parents in two houses about a mile apart down uh, Ray's Bayou. So uh, my dad's house was in, in Ireland and my mom's house was in the somewhat less uh, Tony section uh, of Bray's Bayou, um, uh, Bray's Wood, uh, yeah, Bray's Wood. So, um, we, but we would go back and forth. You could ride your bike between those two houses and we, he and I were together every weekend switching between houses. And then we had some overlapping days during the week that we were together and some that were not. Um, from the 2019 perspective, the other thing that was weird about this arrangement, although I think it was pretty normal for the time was that like co-parenting was not like a thing, you know, this, this idea that like the... <laughs> The sort of parental relationship should be organized around parenting the children. I don't think that was like a baby boomer ethos quite so much. So this isn't really even blaming my parents for that. It just was a very different thing than what I see my co-parenting friends tend to do. So they didn't, my parents didn't really communicate very much about me or what I was doing. And my, my step-parents didn't really communicate very much about my brother or what he was doing. Um, in some ways that was awesome because we were very much in charge of the, the relationship between those groups of parents and who had what information and so forth. Um, and there was a lot of, uh, there's a certain amount of freedom, I think, in that as a kid and a certain amount of like adult kind of responsibility involved in that. Um, but I was really interested in the question abstractly and obviously concretely about whether or not this was all one family, right? My brother and I shared, you know, whether by step or by, by blood, um, we shared all the same in-laws and relatives and grandparents and so forth. And so for he and I, we very much were the same kind of family. We had this idea of like a family is a thing you can add to in different ways. 
Um, but it was clear to us, I think, and confusing to us that our parents didn't conceive of themselves as being part of the same, the same family. So that kind of, uh, what is the structure and fact of families versus what is it at the level of ideology or, or, or proposition is something that I think, you know, I obviously continue to write a lot about <laughs> in terms of how does capitalism ideolo like ideologize the family versus how is it actually, actually structured in fact. Um, and it's true too, I mean, I, my dad and I are, are really close and um, one of the ways that we're really close is that we always sort of talked about uh, his, history and uh, politics together. And um, those of you who are as ancient as me may remember that there was in the 90s a kind of scandal, like this, like somehow Sally Hemings, this long-standing historical figure that we all knew resurged as a, as a scandal of Thomas Jefferson, right? And my dad had been a very kind of fan of Thomas Jefferson as a kind of uh, figure of, of, of U.S. radicalism and, and, and so forth. But he was, he was, he got very interested in this uh, question of whether the descendants of Sally Hemings would be included in the Jefferson family, um, which be, of course became a lawsuit. It became this whole investigation with new DNA technology and so forth and, and whether or not the Hemings clan was going to join the Jefferson clan at Monticello for the uh, family reunions became quite a big thing. It's something my dad and I talked about a lot. Um, and uh, it was kind of the same way. It really occurred to me that like slavery, this whole system of slavery was really organized around this idea of something that really is a family. But in fact, there's all kinds of ideology about who is included and not included in the family on the basis of people's status of enslavement um, or not, and as well as, as well as their gender, let's be real. So, that's a big through line for me, and thanks to my parents for giving me a weird family to think about. The other, the other weird part of that is that, or the part that stuck with me is that um, the sort of reorganization of these couples happened along kind of not really lines of social class as they now are. They were all doctors and lawyers, mostly all working in the public sector, so all the same then social class, but they came from families with different kinds of class backgrounds. And they, when they remarried, they reorganized along the people who had come from the working class background were now married to each other and are still married. And the people who had come from the more management side uh, got married and, and stayed married, you know, until, until, the, until the ideal end of a marriage, which is, you know, when somebody dies, right? Um, so my stepmother passed away when I was a, when I was a kid. But yeah, so it was one, one house kind of had this I don't know what a bougier ethos and the other house had much more a kind of like working class culture, even though there was no real basis for that difference in the material reality of the situation. So that, that also got me interested in the idea of, of class as, as a culture, right? Um, and that this could be different in different places. And I, as a kid, was very interested in kind of like different families, different cultures. And I even actually made a little notebook of, about all my friends, sorry friends, um, about their families and, and what I thought their families cultures were like. Um, so, so yeah, that's my, that's partly about my family. When did you leave Houston? I left Houston when I graduated high school. So in 1999, and I moved to Haverford, Pennsylvania. I had applied early decision to Haverford College um, because, because I was very interested in democracy and Haverford College had a consensus-based student honor code and student government. And I thought I was very interested in this idea of consensus based. It was you know, rooted in this Quaker tradition um, that had, my dad had been very much, you know, uh, 
romanticize the Quaker tradition, so I was very interested in participating in that. Um, and then I got there in my freshman year, the suburbs of Philadelphia on the main line, where the last train back from Philadelphia leaves at like, at the time, left at like 11.45 p.m. Um, and we're on the main line, as I complained to my father, there was nothing whatsoever to eat besides fried chicken, hoagies, and pizza. And there was nowhere to go besides the Wawa. Um, yeah, it wasn't exactly what I was imagining. And it was full of like very wealthy people. Because um, prior to that, I'd been this kid in public school and my parents were doctors and lawyers. I was the richest person I had ever met, really. You know, with some minor exceptions or something. But like, then I got to the school and it was like full of the ruling class. And, and they sort of, you know, in that George Orwell kind of way, like... There's that kind of direct personal confrontation that really sharpens sharpens the the class contradictions for you, and I I decided to to get out, um, and and I needed to be in a big city, um, and really that city needed to be New York. That was there was no other kind of option for that, um, and that's so that's what happened. Yeah, I I, I transferred to NYU and, and went to went to NYU. Um, and I guess there's a there's a there's a through line there too of like why I decided to leave um, my elementary school for the art track. Um, at the time, I didn't think of as a queer thing, but in retrospect, I very much do. Um, my my high school was called HSPVA, and my recollection of being at that school was that there was not very many out queer people of any kind. Um, I would have said I was out. I would have told people at the time that I was bisexual, but that sort of didn't have a lot of social meaning as far as anybody differentiating that from from straightness and there was a lot of people who would be apparently obviously queer in all kinds of ways teachers and students but there wasn't a lot of kind of outward identification of that meanwhile the whole rest of the city called the school hspb gay um and it was sort of well known for being a place where where queer kids went so and now that's all that's all sort of instantiated into the explicit structure of the school. But in the 90s, that wasn't really how, how things went. Um, and in a similar way, I think like going to Haverford and then deciding I need to get out and get to New York and go to NYU, where, you know, our teams were the Violets and the Lady Violets. Um, there was a certain amount of, of, of escaping to a place that is obviously to everybody else queer. Um, and without that being my explicit intention, it certainly was the happy result of, <laughs> of having done that. So, yeah. What was NYU for you? NYU was great. So how, why I picked NYU was, uh, so it was 1999, we're in Haverford, and uh, I'm trying to go, I also had this romantic idea that college is where you go, like politics happen, because my parents went to college in Ohio in the, you know, in 1972. And, you know, six, like, they they were there at the sort of height of this moment. My dad will always describe it as, like, he really thought, like, the revolution was coming any day now. And then he kind of went back to, to Port Arthur and realized, like, nobody in Port Arthur knew the revolution was coming. <laughs> and it was like everybody had just been shot in Kent State and things were really bad. And here in Port Arthur, everybody was just acting like it was normal. Um, but that he had really enjoyed being a political person at school. And I sort of always thought of that as being part of the intellectual life of, of, of school. Um, so Haverford was somewhat disappointing to me in this respect. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of politics going on. There was one little queer group. There was like three of us 
because um, all the queers were over at Renmore, obviously. So <laughs> we were we were just three little fad queers at at Haverford. And the sort of left politics was also not very developed, as you might want to say. There was sort of the, the, the there was a campaign finance reform group that I joined, and campaign finance reform was an important subject for me at the time. <laughs> but uh, somebody from Global Exchange came to school to tell us that there was going to be this thing in Seattle and that we should go. Now, Philadelphia, you might notice, is very far away from Seattle. And I looked at my freshman year calendar and I was like, man, I have a Spanish test on that day. There's no way in hell I'm going to Seattle. Like, whatever. I turn on the TV that day and, of course, what's happening is is the, the battle in Seattle over the, the World Trade Organization meetings and that these are shut down. But the main thing I, I saw was actually was anarchists breaking windows, Starbucks windows, right? And we can look back on that and laugh now, but to me it was like this very profound moment of realizing like, politics aren't over. This, this is the end of history. Like the, the real kind of like street politics are a thing that might continue to happen in the future. This isn't some museum piece of, of the civil rights movement or of you know, the labor movement in the past. Um, and I was very inspired by the idea of, of, of Teamsters and Turtles. I always say Teamsters and Turtles, but I, I do want people to remember this moment as being big deal. It was a big deal. Um, Cause up till then you, you would, if you turned on the news, and you were any kind of lefty progressive person, there was always presented this problematic, right, of of the loggers versus the owls or the teamsters versus the, you know, the people who want to get rid of gasoline. Or the, the idea of working class people and the environmentalism were very counterposed politically at the time. And so this moment of like seeing teamsters and environmentalists arm in arm, shutting down the World Trade Organization. I mean, what could possibly be more inspiring? So I decided I was never gonna miss a single thing like that ever again. And I started looking for schools, not only to be in big old gay New York, but also for places that had uh, ongoing anti-sweatshop campaigns. I decided that I wanted to be a, a, a United Students Against Sweatshops activist. And so NYU was that place at the time that I went there. So I, I really went to NYU for the politics, um, which, is a little weird, but it turned out to be very happy because also uh, I switched from political science at Haverford to, to history. And the history department at NYU then as now is full of just really wonderful Marxist historians, many of whom kind of work in the tradition of, of history from below, who work in the tradition of labor history, of, of black radical history, of um, uh, queer and gender history, and and anti-imperialism. I mean, when I started thinking about the really wonderful classes I got to take in the history department at NYU, it sort of uh, was a little scary to imagine I might have missed that chance in some way. Um, so yeah, NYU was great. Um, but I didn't spend most of my time in class. Nobody would accuse me of having done that. I spent most of my time um, doing politics. And we were sort of a little isolated sphere of campus where we were trying to do various kinds of, of progressive politics. The organization I mostly worked, for, worked with was called Students for Social Equality. Um, and it was sort of a, you know, one of these altered globalization, anarchist themed, uh, you know, uh, affinity groups or, or collection of affinity groups. Oh, sorry. Um, and so we did all kinds of cool stuff. We did stuff like support the uh, the beginnings of a graduate student organizing project at NYU, um, which some of my dear, very dear friends are now now longtime activists with. But I was 
I was I was I was there in the early days going around to classrooms and I at one point I did 50 uh, classroom wraps to go uh, tell um, in a week to go tell other undergraduates about how important it is to support graduate student workers in preparing for a strike um, but we also we also supported uh, clerical workers in the EFT we supported our security guards when they uh, threw out SEIU's top-down controlling uh, um, uh, leadership and, and formed an independent local, Local 1, um, which turned out to be a pretty fun kind of political relationship, if obviously somewhat contradictory in various ways. But yeah, they were, it, was, it was really great. Um, and I learned a lot. I learned a lot about the labor movement. I learned a lot about organizing. Um, I learned a lot about coalition building. We also ran a student government um, and won actually eventually a majority of, of our slate on the student government. And that was a sort of interesting little exercise in a number of ways. I mean, I think it's it's normal to sort of experience your college politics as this kind of like microcosm of other sorts of politics. But I think at NYU it was a particularly neat one. Um, just, you know, uh, a lot of the things that happened there have, have repeated themselves in my subsequent life as an activist and organizer um, in ways that I've found probably sometimes distressing, but also useful, right? That I learned some 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 mistakes not to make uh, from the first time around or the second time around. So so I really liked it. And of course, I had a lot of professors who were um, very supportive of student politics and so uh, were, were helpful in terms of thinking about how to link our academic life with our political life and how to um, make sure that both of those things could kind of fit together in a way where they, where they, where they worked. Um, and yeah, so it was, that was great for me. And I, I ended up moving out when I graduated. I ended up living with many of many of the people I had as roommates for years on were my comrades that I had been organizing with at NYU. What were the politics in New York like for you? In New York? Um, Compared to now, the left politics, it was dark days. It was sad. It was janky. I mean, like, like you would go to meetings and it would be the same 12 of us at every, you know, whatever the topic of the meeting was, whether it was like Palestine or, or Worker Center or whatever, right? It's, you know, more or less the same 50 active, perpetual activist faces would kind of kind of show up. And at the same time, it was, it was highly sectarian. Um, and there was all sorts of people that wouldn't, work together for reasons that for me seemed quite obscure, especially as like a 19 year old and I was trying to learn both this left history and all the ins and outs of various kinds of uh, movement issues and, and so forth. Um, so, but, but I found it also exciting because it was in New York. So there's, there's a few different campaigns, a few different things that happened that I thought were really hopeful to me at the time. And that really motivated me. One of which was the, um, Green Grocer organizing campaign that had actually been, I later found out was started sort of independently by anarchists in the East Village, kind of like an anarchist artist uh, group had helped start organizing uh, workers who were working in these in these um, delis and green grocers. Um, and eventually a, a, a union local that used to have its headquarters on 14th Street, Unite Local 169, so that was before the Unite Here merger, took up the campaign. And so I joined it then as a student supporter and several of us from Students for Social Equality were student organizers with Unite Here. And it was just a really, really exciting, fun 
campaign. Um, like the workers were just incredibly uh, organized, militant, hopeful, generous, full of solidarity. I mean, and, and the union hall was a place you could just go and hang out. Like I would just go there and then like hang out with workers, hang out with the, the very skeleton crew that was there. But there would just always be people kind of hanging out at that union hall. And we would organize demonstrations and, um, you know, we had our own little chance. And once I actually had the task of making the uh, pico de gallo for a, a celebration party um, that we had with the, with people from all the different green grocery locations, and you can imagine there was a lot of pressure to like make this good because most of the workers were um, from Central America and, and Mexico, and I didn't want to be like like this white girl who made shitty pico de gallo. And I'm from Texas, so I also have a little like <laughs> reputation to uphold. And I just remember spending like six hours cutting onions and cilantro and so forth um and like waiting to see like what's the reception of this room full of people gonna be to my pico de gallo and it, it was good it was like people were people were into it it was spicy you know um and we all you know we had a dance and so forth um it was just a great campaign it was it, it you know it actually of course like most things at the time uh didn't win um fundamentally in fact it got sold out to the uscw uh by the international so that was extremely low and depressing point of my learning about how unions work um but but they did weirdly get a huge uh back pay settlement from through the attorney general's office for a lot of the workers who had been not paid so there was at least that little something that happened and i do think it, it had an effect on what the prevailing wage is in the industry um that has at least been something that people can push to maintain or so forth but but you know I, it was a really I learned a lot doing that campaign. The other thing I learned doing that campaign was I went to Mexico as part of one of my um, classes on sweatshops. There was a sweatshop class at NYU. And we went there purportedly to do some research, but I was also there as a USAS person. And I got to interview workers um, who were all basically women, um, were girls, women and girls between the ages of 14 and about 19 who had sat down in... Uh, the Kukdan factory, which was a Korean factory that made Nike shoes. It was a Nike subcontractor. Um, and uh, I learned two very interesting things in the process of that. First, what I learned was um, a lot of those women and girls, fathers were auto workers who had worked in the Volkswagen plant not very far from there and who had themselves been union militants at various times. Um, and so and they, they would all cite this as a reason, you know, one of the inspirations for their organizing. Um, the dads, however, were a slightly different story because when the, the sit-down strike was overnight, so they stayed overnight in the factory, and the dads would go and try, the dads, some of the dads went and tried to get them out of the factory and break the strike because they didn't want their daughters sleeping out of the house. Um, so this was a big part of the, the story and really was like a little crystallizing moment for me in thinking about the family and class and history and how these things kind of transmit. The other interesting part about it that was much more sort of novel at the time than it is now was I was interviewing one of these workers in her house and there was a skyline of New York over the mantle of this really quite lovely uh, ranch house, ranch style house in, in outside of outside of Mexico City. Um, and so I asked her like, why is there a skyline of New York on your wall? You know, like, we're not near New York. We're near another big city that's also really cool. What's up with that? And uh, she was like, oh, that's my brother sent that to me. Um, and I, he sent it piece by piece, each of the little like cutouts, right? And he would send it with money that he was sending back. 
I was like, oh, your brother lives in New York. She's like, yeah, yeah, totally. And her brother um, li- not only lived in New York, he lived in Queens, and he was a worker in, in one of the green grocers that we had been organizing. I knew him. Um, and uh, <laughs> so so that was like this, like I suddenly realized, like, oh, right, like this is this transnational family, right? It's also kind of like a, a real working class structure and one that is like imbricated in these kinds of like, I wouldn't have used that word at the time, I'm sure, but in these kind of histories, right, of, of longer class struggle. Um, and so that was something that really kind of stuck with me. And I, I just had a big sense that, that immigrant workers were a really hopeful part of the potential future of like the world and, and, and the movement in the US. Um, so that was the one thing. And then the other thing was not so hopefully, but uh, movement wise, it was totally different and transformi- transformative very briefly was you know, there was a, there was a war, 9-11 happened. Um, and, and all of a sudden, uh, there was a war and then all of a sudden there was an anti-war movement. So we went from this situation where, which I think some DSA people might now have this experience of like, you go from a room where you're sitting around the same 15 people for a couple years on end. And then all of a sudden something happened and now you're sitting in a room with 250 people and you're in charge. Um, and that was a pretty like, strange and, and interesting experience. It didn't last very long. The, the anti-war movement uh, collapsed um, really into the presidential campaign um, for, for, for not an anti-war candidate um, in a very disappointing way. But in, the, in that moment, it felt very like uh, things were heating up, things were getting bigger. You know, there was one particular moment where a demonstration that had started at NYU, but then kind of spread and we collected people, um, took over Broadway. Right. And I, I can remember standing in the middle of Broadway and looking at looking uptown and thinking, well, I've never seen any of this from this angle because who's ever got to stand in the middle of Broadway and just like look at stuff before? Well, you get to do that if you're with this like movement. Um, and that for me was this you know, change is, is, is qualitative, not just not just, you know, an, some additive step by step moment. So those are my two favorite political moments. of NYU, I think. What was the anti-war? coalition that you were working with? And campaign. Ask me hard questions. I mean, I think we, at NYU, we call it the Student Peace Coalition. Um, and it was, there was a bunch of conflict that's not really worth recounting about what national network of student peace activists, various local instantiations should hook up with. And it all turned out to be a moot point because then the, then the movement collapsed. But um, there was a whole lot of uh, conflict around what student peace coalition and in fact it, what it really was functionally was USAS. I mean basically we we used the same kind of organizational structures to do different kinds of organizing functionally um and it was a lot of the same central personnel um a lot of whom are still actually uh, organizers and activists in the movement now which is something that I think is a pretty cool experience to have to look at somebody like well I've known this person for now you know a couple decades as a as a socialist um or as a radical um so yeah do you remember when that protest was that you were standing in the middle of Broadway it was before the big one it was in the in the lead up to the big one so I think it was between Afghanistan and Iraq I think it was when we started demonstrating against Afghanistan that started building up bigger and bigger meetings 2002 um, 2002 something like that yeah uh what was your trajectory around uh, sexuality and gender so it's really weird. I mean, it's it, for me, and this is also, I think, something that I think about a lot now with the left now. Um, 
my like political life and my academic life as a radical was like there was a lot of queer people around it was sort of like high school in that sense a lot of people well, there's a lot of queer people around and a lot of those people have become way more queer since since then but it wasn't something that everybody talked about much and the people who were sort of out if you were operating in the kind of anarchist or socialist or radical anti-globalization scene it was kind of like it's uncool to make that be the main thing about you like you might be an organizer for the women's center and all the people organizing for the women's center were queer obviously but um or lesbians or bisexual there's a lot of too but um uh but like even in the women's center that wasn't sort of you know there was this sort of like what i guess we would now say sort of like anti-identitarian uh edge to it right that you wouldn't want to just be uh, a queer activist you wouldn't want to just be a feminist you wouldn't want to just be you know you want to be a real radical right like you know that's that's not so particular as all that um and that was way more true even for me i i definitely was uh, at the time I would have said a whole lot of things that I would now look back and be like, well, that's just sort of self-loathing, uh, um, biphobic nonsense. But I, I, I uh, was often dating men um, in a way that uh, made me feel cut off from the, the sort of organized queer community on campus. Um, the organized queer community on campus was extremely liberal. So for example, when we were running our, our radical candidates for student government, one of our main opponents who like switched to our side was this this guy who was a who was an out gay but very kind of political like you could see he was like preparing for his um future campaign as a real politician and then he sort of realized that we had the juice so he he started the joke was he like went from wearing suits and being this kind of like homonormative gay to, like he got an earring and a leather jacket and like tight pants to like come hang out with the radicals and like sort of carpet bag on our campaign um so like that tension always kind of existed and then you know my social life revolved a lot around my sort of you know this this activist scene and then i i had a kind of like separate and i wouldn't say like secret social life but it was definitely like i had a separate like gay like queer like sex oriented social life that was um i don't i don't remember thinking of it like oh this is something i don't tell my like straight or presumably straight uh, activist friends about, but um, but I didn't very much, that's for sure. Um, and, it, and it was like very early in the, in the, at least early for me in the years of like online cruising. Um, but online cruising made things a lot easier, uh, I think for, especially for like um, bi, lesbian, whatever, that, that category of people. Um, then and so lots of funny things would happen like i would uh i was a gender studies minor so i would like have been on some internet hookup with somebody that i met you know in some i don't know like in a, in a bar uh or something like that who i didn't necessarily know was an nyu student and didn't find out at that information during the course of the evening or much other information and then like run into them in in like lisa dugan's class for example <laughs> um and stuff like that would always happen, which I think, like, I'm sure that still does happen to some people. That's not how my life is organized now, so it, it feels really different. But um, that also sort of seems like one of those trans historical experiences of queer people. Of, like, you have this one side of your life, and then you have the other side of your life. And then sometimes they kind of, like, merge or meet in, in strange and unexpected ways that point, really point out to you how bifurcated that kind of 
experience can be. So. Could you, you referenced online cruising, yeah. meeting people at NYU bars. Could you sketch the sort of shape of that scene a little <laughs> bit more? Well, I mean, I think then less, it's, it's, I don't know if it's worse or better now. It's probably worse now. Um, but there's never really been like a, a great, you know, solid, non-precarious kind of like lesbian, dyke, AFAB social space that's like in bars, right? Like we, we know that those are all very precarious and they, they were then. There were, um, um, there was Caddyshack, um, you know, so that was a place that I always go. But also all your friends would be at Caddyshack. So like picking up a Caddyshack was a little like, it was like, for me, it was like more like a social, social space. Right. Where, where was Caddyshack? Oh, now you're asking me hard questions. I don't know the East Village. Um, I can tell you, if I walked up to it, I, I could I could walk there in my sleep, but where it is, I don't know. Um, <laughs> where it was, I don't know. Um, there was always Henrietta Hudson's, but I always found Henrietta Hudson's to be completely uh, alienating in various different kinds of ways. At pretty much every moment of my existence, I've, I mean, I've literally been like thrown out of there several times. So... Um, that didn't count in the mental map for me besides as like a no-go zone or a place I would try to go once every four years and then remember why the fuck I didn't go there in the first place. Um, and online cruising, there was like Craigslist and there was like, this is going to sound so old. Oh my good Lord. But the, but nerve.com personals was one of the first things that had like queer options, right? That you could pick what genders of people that you wanted to meet. And it was sort of this like pseudo literary erotic thing. So you're also shopping really amongst your kind of like at least educational milieu, educational, similarly educated cohort, I guess. Um, and so I met a lot of people that way. And sometimes that would turn into funny different kinds of, of re-meetings, I guess, in different places and so forth. Um, and then though it was also the... You know, it wasn't the heyday of the 90s. I mean, I think this is a, a, such a New York cliche of like, right before I got to New York was when New York was the best. But um, the real thing I spent a lot of time doing was going to um, clubs, right? There was still real fucking clubs in New York. There was, um, uh, there was Limelight. I mean, I spent a shit ton of time at Limelight. Um, and then there was the other ones that weren't as good, but like similar kind of like club kid spaces where you would have, you had to get dressed up. You had to put on an outfit, like you had to, and you had to plan to be there for like six or eight hours, you know, starting at, you know, I'm a dork, so starting at like 1030, but other people starting at one, right? Um, and you go with your friends, you take a nap before as a whole big production and ritual. And uh, that's, I did spend a lot of my time doing that and sort of, uh, found it really fun and found it really like, um, like it's not just fun for like the dancing, the drugs and sex and all that. That's fun. But like, but what was fun about it was there was, there was like a, there was like a culture, right. That was very, to me, different than, than my school culture or other kinds of culture that was like competitive, witty banter, you know, insult games, but that are some, mostly in good fun. And then sometimes turn really, you know, not necessarily all good fun, but like I found it sort of, I don't, intellectually challenging sounds weird, but challenging. I found it exciting and challenging to like engage in, with people in that way. But certainly at that period, how I got perceived in that space was, was I mean, not basically, was as like a fag hag. Like there was a category of, of person to be in this club and that's what that's, you know, so was, whether you're bisexual or straight, you're here hanging out with all these gay boys as a kind of adjunct to their 
uh, and the scene is about the scene is about them. And of course, they're all presumed to be boys as well, which I think, like in retrospect, uh, the the same kinds of people would probably not identify that way today. Um, and sort of like the the sort of there's the overt proposition and the, the thing that really happens in the family. There is also, I think, in these kinds of differentiated New York kind of gay scenes where you have the like. Uh, you have the girls over here and the boys over here and there's often a lot of like hostility and blah 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 and there's a clearly definitely an assumption of mon monosexuality i think in all those spaces more so then than there was now but that didn't really necessarily reflect the kinds of uh sex people were having or the kinds of like engagements and and, and relationships that people had um, that i had so that's an interesting thing to reflect back on now and and it's it's also just horrible that there's not clubs like that there's not the same like there are there are still dance clubs but uh in new york a lot of the ones that i've seen them located are basically sort of platforms for sex work that doesn't make them not fun and it's not like there wasn't sex work going on and the, the clubs i'm talking about either but they were just much more like physically spacious and kind of socially spacious like much more kind of a broader array of race and class and gender and so forth of uh, people appeared to me to be in those clubs and um that's the other thing that made it exciting is that you had this kind of like way of talking to people that we all shared, but you were talking about actually this like huge variety of experiences that people would have had coming from maybe an entirely other country, like, you know, or, but also from somebody who grew up in Staten Island and then became a club kid drag queen, right? Like there's just all kinds of um, really cool uh, stories like that. So that was, that was what I considered to be the most like fun thing to do when I was in college. And then the other thing was like, we did um, a lot of like house socials, like, you know, and, and in retrospect, some of those, that was much more queer than it seemed to me at the time because that's who organized it, right? And that's who really came. We would sort of propose it as like, we're gonna do a social for all of the left of NYU, right? But who would actually wanna come and drink our tea and eat our vegetarian, you know, tofu dogs and like talk about whatever it was we were talking about was mostly like uh, people that I would now clearly recognize as, as, as queers. Um, but at the time it was just sort of like the, it was like the soft boys club, like, you know? Um, and so like, that's, that's how I spent, that's how I spent a lot of my, my social time. Yeah. How did you get into socialist politics? Um, yeah. I was on stage at a NYU. Uh, it was actually the week after I did all those 50 class reps preparing students for the possibility of a gradu graduate student worker strike that we should all support. Um, and I got a call from one of the organizers at the UAW who said, Kate, gotta come down to Judson. We're having a meeting. There's a mass meeting at Judson. So we all get down, there's a mass meeting at Judson and one of the officials of the UAW has been flown in to make a very important announcement, Julie Kushner. And the very important announcement was that the contract had been settled and we would not have to go on strike. And by this point, I'm up on stage representing the student supporters of the graduate students. And one of the staff people elbows me and says, um, uh, points to somebody who's raising their hand and says, don't worry about them, those are the radicals from the history department. Um, the person raising their hand kind of shouted out right at that moment, like, don't we get to vote on the contract? Don't we get a vote? What's in this contract? And I sort of just like, I don't know exactly what I did then, but as soon as I could, I, I, I got off the stage and kind of made a beeline over to that person. Um, 
And that person turned out to be a graduate student in the history department um, whose name was Betsy Esch. And uh, she... Say her name again. Elizabeth Esch. Betsy. Um, Betsy Esch. Um, and she's, she still exists. She's still a human. She's still a friend of mine. But she became somebody who... I took classes with her. I took a seminar class with her. Taught as, she taught it as a grad student on transnational... Uh, Oh, was it transnational social movements or something? Transnational history. History and transnational perspective. That's what it was. That was a, transnationalism was a big deal back then. That was just, that's all the content you needed for the title of the class. Um, and it was a great class. It was all activists. It was Betsy. And she was a socialist. She was a member of an organization called uh, Solidarity. Um, and uh, it was through her that I sort of learned about that particular socialist tradition about uh, of, of rank-and-file activism and that was what really appealed to me about solidarity um, and of course that is what had appealed to me about Betsy right it makes perfect sense that 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 her activity right as this kind of rank-and-file uh, uh, instigator right was the thing that had had drawn me to her um, and and she turned out also to be a really cool historian and teacher um, so so that was how I ended up uh, joining Solidarity, although I didn't join it right away. Solidarity, um, apologies, comrades, but it was one of the worst organizations in the history of the universe at recruiting people. So nobody even asked me to join Solidarity until I'd been sort of a fellow travel tra traveler for several years. I'd already written several documents for like the internal bulletin, regularly attended Solidarity meetings of various kinds. And it wasn't until like a couple years of that that somebody was finally like, like, you should join Solidarity. And I was like, why? I mean, I'm already doing all the, like, is there some reason I need to? They're like, it, it was literally just like, oh, on principle, you should join because socialists should join organizations and pay dues. Like, if you're going to do the thing, you should, you should join an organization. And that, you know, I'm, I'm enough of a, a dork and a formalist and so forth that, that worked on me. But in retrospect, that's maybe not the argument I, I would go to if I was recruiting somebody to an organization today. Although I think I still pretty much, uh, use the same method, the same non-method of recruitment. Um, so, you know, old habits die hard, I guess, is how it goes. But that's how I became a socialist. I remember thinking it was a very scary idea to call yourself a socialist. I was actually reading Michael Harrington's biography on the plane to fly into New York when I first moved to New York from Haverford, or like from Texas, when I first, I came by myself on a plane. And the book I brought to bring with me was Her Michael Harrington's Socialism. And um, I remember reading it and thinking, like, it was like beyond the pale, like that I'm probably a socialist, but it's like beyond the pale to call yourself a socialist. And that, that's not something you could say in public. And maybe there was some other way of talking about this where you could communicate the idea of being a socialist without actually stigmatizing yourself in this way. So there's, you know, for me in the sort of life history of things, like the sort of half in, half out, presumptive closetedness of being both queer and being a socialist are really very similar. Um, and the kind of assumed division between kind of like queer life and radical politics uh, that or a presumptive division between those things that to me is now seems really quite artificial um, really kind of characterizes my whole experience of that of that period and struggling through thinking of like who do you tell uh, when when do you tell when's the right time to tell somebody that you're a socialist and like when's the right time to like uh, out yourself in this way or that way, or is it is it really meaningful to, to call yourself queer if you're uh, supposedly a woman, supposedly dating men? Um, you know these were these were related 
questions to me even at the time. I, you know, now have a much more worked out analysis of how they are very explicitly related, I think. But um, at the time, they were just sort of evocatively and emotionally related. Um, they really felt like much the same thing. Yeah. Tell me about solidarity and your trajectory in it and what it's like as a organization. Well, let me start by telling you what I liked about it. Um, which was, you know, aside from Betsy, who was wonderful, but there were many wonderful people in solidarity. And there's a lot of people who had just decades of experience of being organizers, of being activists, and of being socialists, right? And, and at least in the context of socialist meetings, telling other people that they were socialists. And I found that just really, really compelling. And I, I saw in people kind of 15 years older than me, and then also people from that, like, uh, boomer 68 generation as, like, these are life paths that you don't see very often of like, how do people grow up to be socialists, right? The story you always hear is, is people grow up, somehow they magically make more money and then they stop being radicals and they start becoming liberals or conservatives. And I, my own family history is enough rooted in the left that I didn't necessarily imagine that for myself, but I also didn't really have a whole lot of clear ideas about how active political organizing as a radical could be part of somebody's like adult life or a big part of somebody's adult life. And so one thing was just being around solidarity gave me a lot of uh, examples of that um, in ways that seemed doable, right? These were all people who were kind of like living in Brooklyn and had various kinds of jobs, whether rank and file jobs or, or staff jobs or academic jobs, but, but that allowed them to participate in different ways in, in movement struggles. So I liked that. The other thing I liked about them was that they didn't bullshit you, right? I had, it's hard to remember, but if you were kind of involved in sort of NGO or even just mainstream union politics at the time, it was constantly this series of things where you put together something, you'd hope it would turn into something a little bigger than, than it seemed likely to. It usually didn't, right? Sometimes it was even worse than you expected, right? In terms of just a big, a big lot of nothing. Um, and then you'd go to a meeting where you'd assess it and everybody would be like, wow, that was such a wonderful victory. Like we had such a great rally, uh, you know, with the rat or against the war or whatever. And you'd sort of look at it and be like, like, I was glad to be there. I enjoyed chanting, but I'm, I'm, I'm wondering like, what's the, how is this building up to some, some bigger picture? And solidarity people were the first people that I met that told me that uh, it wasn't. Um, and in fact, we should try to think a little more strategically about how these things might build up to a, to a bigger picture. And when I presented them with things like the critique I had worked out of, of for example, United Students Against Sweatshops, as this kind of uh, organization that was meant to be supporting workers organizing in other countries and sweatshops, that there was a lot of limits to that, right? That we weren't actually, it was very difficult for us to connect with worker organizing, that it was transmitted through these different kinds of NGOs and unions, um, in that a lot of it sort of felt like a, like a, some kind of psychic charity, right? Where if we break the bonds with the sweatshops here at NYU, it's somehow gonna translate into worker power somewhere else and that I hadn't seen a lot of uh, great examples of evidence of that even there's a few exceptions right the Kukdong thing was kind of an exception um, but there was a lot of other ones that were just sort of publicity stunts or, or nice articles um, so solidarity people just told me yeah no that's that, this, this is not working none of these things are getting us towards socialism or even rebuilding the labor movement or stopping the war so like um, but they also didn't say that doesn't mean we can't we can't think that we that those things are impossible to do. In fact, we should we should try to do them. Um, so, 
So that's what I liked about it. And I really had a lot of faith that uh, both in the kind of like, these are people who put their money where their mouth is. Like they, they got jobs working in transit. They, you know, spent their careers, uh, their working lives, I want to say, you know, either working in very low wage and not very glamorous kind of staff jobs for tiny uh, movement worker organizations or, you know, in rank and file jobs where they might get paid a fair amount depending on what the job is, but are also going to be sort of culturally and socially isolated from the main, a lot of the left. Um, these are often really hard jobs that are hard on your body that and, and hard on your psyche. And like a lot of these people, you know, had graduated from elite universities and, and could have, you know, could have gone on into much more classically petty bourgeois type of occupations and did. They, they chose to spend their lives doing this stuff. So I, I trusted their, their judgment a lot on that basis, right? I would say, uh, because there's something very significant about that, right? It's one thing to talk the talk. It's another thing to, to walk a walk. Um, and so that's what I liked most about Solidarity. Um, there's a lot of things I didn't like about Solidarity. Um, one of which was, you know, the left was in a low moment of struggle and there was all this kind of history going on in all these different groups and there weren't very many people in the groups. And so all that history kind of coalesces in, in the form of, of, of one or two individual people and their personality quirks. So you would end up in these meetings where there's like arguments that make no sense to you if you haven't been around for 30 years that can sometimes be quite vicious or quite uh, intense and that uh, feels very demoralizing and very pointless and very, um, you're asking yourself, why am I spending my Sunday at this meeting? Um, and how, again, like how is that building us towards, towards socialism or something? And so I, a lot of my time in solidarity sort of felt like that. Um, even if I had some worked out idea about why I was sitting in that meeting and how it was going to help help move things along. Um, the other thing about Solidarity that I liked was that it was an organization, it was a feminist organization, it was a Marxist feminist organization, and it had a lot of women leaders, and a lot of those people were queer. So at the time, I didn't really think of it as just like, a lot of it, this wasn't something I thought about explicitly, but in retrospect, I was also looking at people who had figured out how to live their adult lives as not just radicals, but as, as queer radicals. Um, and so that was the thing I liked about Solidarity. Um, but the there was a long-standing kind of difference between the implicit and explicit politics of that, I guess. I wouldn't say that Solidarity was like a queer activist organization. Like certainly Solidarity members would have gone with me to, or gone by themselves to various kinds of, of you know, street demonstrations or mass, mass demonstrations about, uh, would have gone to Pride, would have gone to a march for gay marriage, something like that. Um, but I wouldn't say we spent a lot of time talking about, about queer politics, let alone like, you know, I don't know, queer, queer, I hate the phrase queer theory, but you know what I mean? Like, like analyzing from a Marxist perspective, like uh, queer feminist kind of po politics. That was not a, not, um, not a strong, there were people doing that, but it wasn't a strong track, I think, in, in, in solidarity at the time. Um, yeah, so that was, that was a lot of the, a lot of the, most of the time I spent in solidarity, those were my sort of competing straight. Oh, I guess the other thing I really liked about it was I got to be a leader. I got, I kept getting to, to do things like, um, organize, you know, 
uh, conferences for, for young socialists or organize the rank and file youth project to try to get so young socialists to, to get rank and file jobs and to be at various kinds of committees on the leadership of the New York branch or, or of the, of the uh, national organization. Um, and I got to meet then, of course, people from all over the country who were solidarity members who all each had this very interesting story of how they became socialists and a lot of really deep and interesting insight about the labor movement, about socialism, about the Black Freedom Movement, about a whole range of things. Um, and I would say I probably learned more talking to, to solidarity members of varying generations about U.S. history, about left history, um, about world history, probably than I learned even in, even in my favorite parts of college. Um, and those kinds of conversations give you a context for that information that's not just kind of uh, random memorization of this year or that year, but people put it in a, in a story for you in order, in a way that it makes sense, right? And in in where they are present um, in that story, in a way that makes those details salient and, and, and directing you toward various kinds of morals and conclusions about what strategy might be like today. And I, I found that, that long running conversation um, that's, you know, it's very collective among whatever, 300, 500, however many active solidarity members there were at any given time, right? Like, uh, the biggest reason to be around um, social politics. So, yeah. We have one other interview in the Transital History Project with solidarity person, Donna Cartwright. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, I, I, I remember that you that you, uh, that you were going to do that. That's great. Um, I actually remember a long ago conversation I had with Donna about the... Uh, newspaper strike um so she's one of those that was the first time i'd ever heard of it so so she's a great example of somebody who uh told me a lot of history that i now know but from a kind of up close and personal perspective that i wouldn't have had you know without her so yeah uh before we move on to other topics is there more you'd like to say about solidarity or your experience there or I mean, how you left or... <laughs> probably um yeah i mean the, the long and short of how i left was uh um, I want to put it in some a little bit of historical context here. Sorry, I got to. Um, but like, so if you know, if you think about the moment we're in today, right? There's this resurgence of socialist politics. There's this resurgence of real class activity that seems like it could be something, like be more than a more than a blip on the horizon. So it's hard to look back and think about what sorts of things we were investing hope in, or what we thought about. In this in this moment of what we now was definitely low struggle right in, in the in the 90s right um right like i was getting excited about anarchists throwing rocks in windows like now i would be annoyed right um rather than excited about that um but you know once occupy kind of happened and there was this there was this well even before occupy wisconsin happened right and there was this moment and one of the great things about being in solidarity is i think a lot of left activists don't remember Wisconsin as being this this moment of a possible turning point in, in U.S. class struggle, but the kind of education that Solidarity pointed you to made that immediately clear that that was what was happening there. Right? It was almost a general strike broke out. People took over the the you know the the state house. There was like active decisions being made collectively by the people who were engaged in this action. Right? It had all those moments of like not just that that quantity shift, but a real qualitative change, right? That, and that people couldn't leave without a kind of like, there was there, there was gonna be some 
had to be a decision making, right? That people were acting really collectively, not with this idea of acting collectively, right? Um, and of course, Wisconsin was completely crushed. Um, Wisconsin was completely crushed and smushed and smashed uh, by union bureaucrats, right? Tamping down the idea of there being this general strike by specifically pushing for protest over strike action and by specifically pushing this wave of militancy into uh, uh, an election, a, a referenda. Um, and the consequences of that were extremely dire. I mean, that's the thing that made it possible for this wave of, of right to work legislation to, to, to sweep the whole country and really destroy uh, the basis, you know, the, the legal basis of, of what remains of the, the private sector labor movement in the U.S. Um, it's just like the last act, right, of this low moment of, 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 of struggle, right, when it turns is like tragic. I mean, this is also when we, this is the thing that made it possible for UAW pensions to be vitiated while the UAW is getting bailed out by, by our hope and change Barack Obama president, right? So like, um, and then Occupy kind of comes up and in both of those things there was already signs that there was, that there was a, fem a particularly feminist or a particularly gender cast right to this new wave of struggle both in the u.s and then all over all over the world um and so that was something that was very interesting and you know i had long been somebody who thought about read about kind of like sexual harassment and sexual violence and was always trying to figure out how to put that in uh, a way that made sense with with marxist politics and i and, and thought about uh movement history that way the debates in feminist history that way i guess but the thing that happened with Occupy is people really started trying to do things concretely about sexual harassment, sexual violence, thinking about rape as this like social problem we could we could stop, right? Um, and there started being new degree of investment in that. Um, and that happened in, in Solidarity too. And so one of the things that I tried to do along with other people, wasn't just me by any stretch of any imagination, was realizing that we needed to have some kind of like policy in the organization about how to deal with instances of sexual harassment and sexual violence, right? And this was something that was coming up in various elements of, of my organizing work inside and outside Solidarity. And I kept having the situation where people would just kind of come to me informally and think of, think of me as somebody who was smart or a leader or something and expect me to be able to solve this problem, um, like just tell them what to do and we could fix it. And uh, the more often that happened, the less competent I felt to be able to to take on that role. And so this kind of idea that there should be some formal process made a lot of sense. And I spent a fair amount of time both working with other people to try to design a process, negotiate a process, and to really get that passed in a way that it was like ratified by the, by the organization. And it was a huge struggle. It was a struggle that took over two years. And one of the consequences of that struggle was actual instances of, of sexual harassment and violence in solidarity that had not been ever publicly discussed even within the organization really came to light um and the impasse came for me when uh, uh some of the long-standing you know leadership of the organization um refused to uh match to, to say whether or not it even matched uh, that new reports of sexual harassment matched some of these old reports of of rape and and sexual assault so that we could identify whether or not the person from this old story was still harassing people, right? Um, and then use our newly passed uh, gender process to like at least remove this person from the organization, right? And to and also to set 
the stage, right, of a new moment where we're going to actually be able to deal with these things in some formal way. And so that uh, was unacceptable to me that that uh, that would take that would happen. So I so I vacated um, and left left the organization, sort of seeing that there was both. So it was still a little bit different than it is now because I, at the one hand, I was like, oh, I can't progress. I can't stay in an organization that is going to not be willing to, to make those connections and, and kick out fucking rapists out of the, out of the organization. Um, and I didn't feel like there was there was some sort of like public audience for the internecine details of Solidarity's Gender Violence Commission. Um, so that's just... That's just how it ended up. So I, I sort of like was adrift with no political home for a while, just like a sad Marxist feminist all all alone. Um, but I did get a chance to kind of spend a fair amount of time reflecting on that, thinking about that, thinking about how things might, how we might do things in the future. And also really thinking about, you know, it, it's on my mind too, because the, the, the ISO has just had a very similar uh, story and one that happened much more publicly, I think, than Solidarities did. But um uh, sort of blow up, at least if you're, if you're a dork leftist like me, you've been following this law for like three weeks. And, um, a similar thing, one of the similarities there is that this kind of older founding generation, the, the boomer generation, the 68 generation, um, it's not just that people are sort of dishonest. So there's certainly lots of dishonesty. It's also that there's a real kind of disagreement about, um, what constitutes like uh, serious rape and sexual assault, right? And what, um, and also like, what does due process mean in the context of like a socialist organization, right? So like the fight that I had, part of it was, we saw this repeated in the ISO that they really think, and coming out of this particular IS tradition, I think, they really think that different incidents should be adjudicated differently. Like, this is like an important principle of like the bourgeois legal system. Um, that should be repeated in socialist organizations, whereas like my kind of uh, training in part in, in feminism, uh, but also just sensibility is that like if somebody is repeatedly harassing somebody, they are a, they are a, a special kind of danger, right? That that a, a one-off uh, incident of harassment or sexism or something is is different, right? Than somebody who's repeatedly has a pattern of of, of harassment and and violence, and so you have to be able to match. The first story to the second story, right? Whereas they're they're sort of using the, the the like law and order logic of like the fruit of the poisonous tree. Well, you have to exclude all this evidence from from adjudication. But like we're not a bourgeois court, right? We're socialists, and we're not trying to build a fair, a totally fair, harmonious internal society of, of of a socialist organization. We're trying to build an organization that can be functional enough to fight for socialism and fight for, for working class politics. And, and part of that I think means um, not letting people derail it internally through all kinds of, 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 sort of harassment or rape. Um, and, and so that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a battle, right? That we could have like, yeah, people are having it kind of explicitly, but it's also happening in the form of these kind of struggles within organizations and within movements. Can you say what the ISO is? For Sorry, that was the International Socialist Organization. And for the people keeping score on the, the, the baseball scorecard at home, Solidarity and the International Socialist Organization both come out of the same socialist tradition, out of the international socialists, um, which is one of many sort of 
Trotskyist influenced uh, a trends in, in, in world socialism. I don't know. So they're, they're sort of like cousin sister organizations um, with a lot of shared experience, movement experience and, and politics and really some overlapping membership at various different times or like personnel rearrangements. And so. we are speaking um, in the immediate aftermath of the ISO voting to disband right. our yeah. rape scandal. Which is it was sort of historic in the whole tradition of, of the, this, this brand of socialism and most of the broader Trotskyist inflected socialists that, that they actually voted their leadership caucus out of power. I think uh, it was determined that this has never happened before. Um, <laughs> ever. Um, and also that they voted to disband themselves uh, sort of democratically, I think is really quite unusual, um, if not unprecedented. So there's really something interesting to be said about that. But I also think there is a kind of broader class forces moment, not to be one of those people, but all of these organizations, it's not just Solidarity, and it's not just the ISO, and it's not just the, the Trotskyist wing of things, but all these kind of uh, small codified organizations all seem to be collapsing very rapidly at this particular moment, that their, their existence is no longer tenable given the kinds of, of I don't know, class, class forces that are, that are happening and the kinds of changes that, that, that has wrought in the, in the socialist left. Um, so that's a really interesting question for us is like, what does, what, what is the future of socialist organization? And we can talk about like what the present of socialist organization is, but also like given the pace uh, that things are changing, I think you can't just think about characterizing the present. We also have to be thinking about what is likely or possible to happen uh, in the in the immediate and and somewhat longer longer term. So um, that's the reason. It's not just the reason I spend a lot of time thinking about the ISO and solidarity and how they've how they have uh, died down or fallen apart. Um, isn't just some weird socialist nostalgia, but sort of thinking about what is this what does this mean for for going ahead or for what socialist organization might look like uh, right now. Uh, so coming back, uh, you've told us about solidarity and you've told us a lot about your political time and a little bit about your um, queer time at mm -hmm. NYU. Uh, what was your life like when you finished at NYU? Um, well, I lived in Brooklyn and during the time that I went to NYU, I had moved to Brooklyn pretty early on in that trajectory. Um, and I moved to Brooklyn with a bunch of other activists. And so I lived in a series of kind of like collective houses and we thought of them as being political, right? We thought of this as not just kind of, we need roommates to be able to pay the rent, but also that we were, we were active, we were anarchists or activists or radicals living together who were gonna like uh, experiment with like, um, I don't know, yeah, like a social, a social way of living. So, you know, um, to varying degrees of success, I would say. Um, and of course, this was like very much part of this, uh, that particular wave of gentrification in Brooklyn and something that we were very aware was the case. Um, so the first place I lived in Brooklyn um, in, as an undergrad was this place called, we, we named all the houses after various aspects of their, their addresses or other things like that. So one of them was, was 31 Irving Place in uh, Clinton Hill. And um, we called it 31 after, after it's, it's address um and it was a pretty crappy apartment that was officially a two-bedroom apartment 
Um, and it was two floors of a, of a brownstone, not even a brownstone. It was like the, the sort of 1950s crappy version of a brownstone that was not a brownstone. I don't know what you would call that a siding stone. Um, and, uh, in a, in a backyard. So in a basement. So we had the, 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 the ground floor, whatever you want to call that, then the first floor and then a basement and uh, a porch that went out from the first floor into a backyard. So that parlor floor level was just the kitchen and a half bath and like the living room. So that was kind of like, it was a great place for like meeting rooms, for parties, you know, and it, it opened onto the, the back porch and then down into the backyard. So in, in that sense, it was a really great place for a bunch of activists to live because we could, we could have meetings there. We could have socials. We could throw fundraisers. Um, so that was great. Then the next floor down was where the two actual bedrooms were. Um, and three people lived in the biggest one of those bedrooms and shared. Um, and then I was living with a partner at the time. And so we shared the other bedroom and that one had like French doors that opened up under the, the porch. And then a third person, my, my, my best friend, Jay lived in a large closet on that floor as a single bed that like basically it was a large closet that fit a twin bed. Um, and that was his room. So now we're talking that there's, what is it? Six people live on that floor. And then some, another five or six people lived in the basement basically. And things were divided up by like, like for initially it was like bookshelves dividing, you know, different parts of the basement. And then maybe we built, there's some sheet rocking maybe that happened. I don't know exactly. Um, the basement was really gross. You couldn't have paid me enough money to live in that basement. It was wet. It was dank. It smelled. It was miserable. And you had to live there with six people who all did weird stuff like play guitars in the middle of the night or like, you know, God knows what else. Um, so <laughs> it was really, it was really, a. am not really cut out for that level of, of like chaos. I, I, I want to say like bohemianism, but I just, for me, it was distressing sometimes to sort of come home and, and. There was some big social event going on that hadn't been necessarily actually all like we didn't we weren't even warned let alone kind of like it was a collective decision making um but uh we got me and my partner and jay basically got purged from the house because some other more like cooler people wanted to live there so um that problem was solved by <laughs> us just getting unceremoniously dumped um so we started our own house down the street and we actually moved with like wire grocery carts like we just made like 85 trips of like with all our crap like around the corner to our new apartment um known as 43 which was 43 putnam um and that one was a much more beautiful apartment um where we had the parlor floor the basement and another floor above it and that that apartment had um and also keep in mind, everybody in the first place was paying like $300 a month in rent. It was like absolutely ridiculous. And then in the second place, we had the, the second floor had two bedrooms and a half bath. And then you came downstairs um, and there was, a, oh, I guess it was only two floors. And then there was like the huge big bedroom that was like right in the front of the um, brownstone. And then the kitchen was down there. Um, and we lived there with only with like one person in each bedroom, except for the couple bedroom that was twice as big and had two people. So it was a much more kind of reasonable living situation where we actually had four people sharing, you know, like two and a half bathrooms or something like that, something slightly more normal. And we had a backyard, which was great. Um, 
And that was much more pleasant, except for our landlords were completely insane. And so that eventually uh, forced us out. And I've since seen that apartment advertised. Um, and um, it's now going for like $4,000 a month or something. <coughs> it's right there in Clinton Hill. <coughs> as far as I can tell, they haven't done any serious renovation of it either in the, in the, you know, the whole 10 years. Um, we also went through a phase, I think, where we also took the apartment above that. So there was like, and it was, it was, it was a, a not to belabor, but there was a very New York, just funny New York thing about this, which was, um, it was a single landlord owned this whole building. And this was, a, you know, she was not a wealthy person. This was like her main thing that she owned. Um, and her daughter lived in the top apartment. So it was like, it was an illegal three, basically. It was supposed to be a two. <coughs> and our landlord's daughter lived on the top floor. And our landlord's daughter was sort of a not very successful actress about 10 years older than me or so who had appeared. Um, she actually is in Do the Right Thing. And I have located her in, um, she's like an extra in Do the Right Thing and an extra in a couple Law & Order episodes. Um, and she didn't seem to have anything in the way of like gainful employment. Um, she's very beautiful and, and usually very nice person, but she, she also had some sort of like substance habit that would occasionally cause her to hallucinate, like olfactory hallucinations, where she would imagine an, an auditory hallucination. So she would come downstairs sort of accusing us of crashing around when we were like sitting reading books, you know, um, or like that she went, she accused us repeatedly of cooking uh, mouse droppings on the stove and that, the, that there was some sort of ammoniated scent rising to her apartment because mouse droppings were being cooked on the stove. So it was a little bit crazy um, and and unpleasant. And it sort of deteriorated to the point where our, our actual landlord would like wait outside harassing us to try to like get us to to leave. Um, even though we, you know, we paid our rent on time and we were, we were very good tenants um, at that particular time. So we eventually then moved over to a third collective anarchist house called, called Leopard's Place. And I think at 10 Leffert's place. And I think that one is still maybe in operation with none of the original members. Although for some reason I still get emails about the, the electricity. So I have some fear that the electricity bill may still be in my name <laughs> from, I don't know how many years ago. And with nobody there living that living there that I know at all. Um, <laughs> and that was, we had the whole, the whole building. It was very cool. That the had two kitchens. There's a kitchen on the top floor and a kitchen on the bottom floor. It was kind of this skinny, weird frame building. Um, and kind of like two uh, bedrooms on every floor except for uh, the one that, that also had a had a kitchen, right? I think that's right. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But And it had its own backyard. And that was a great place to live for a lot of the same reasons that we said. And we kind of worked out a little bit more of our how to be roommates, how to organize life collectively, how to make space for each other. Um, it's one of the reasons I think it might still be going is that we set up a much more kind of concerted chore chart and decision-making process and all those sorts of things. Cause I went from being somebody who just sort of did all the things. Like I would do all the grocery shopping for these houses and do a lot of the cooking and collect all the rent and make sure it got paid and put the bills in my name. Um, which as it turns out is basically a full-time job where you're like a landlord and a, a I don't know, like a hotel keeper or a barkeeper for like, I don't know, six or seven, like 
early 20s anarchist <laughs> like that's just a lot it's a lot <laughs> and uh, so so eventually I moved out of there and I lived by myself for a while and that was actually like one of the one of my highlight like my favorite place I've lived in New York and in a kind of like highlight life experience of, of I had a studio apartment all to myself in in Crown Heights um that I loved in a rent stabilized building um that was just a beautiful place so yeah I mean it's funny because I was sort of in, in a lot of a lot of those moments like a socialist and an anarchist at the same time. I had this kind of like anarchist milieu out of my student activism, and then I was now involved more in solidarities politics and more uh, involved in the labor movement. I was thinking about actually trying to get a rank and file job at that point. I applied to a lot of uh, city city jobs um, and sort of didn't get call back calls back for any of them until years later at times that it would have been would have required me to like get on a plane to fly to take the exam and so that didn't work um i also really wanted to try to work at a um in a logistics company which didn't work out for several reasons i got told i was overqualified because of my nyu degree um so a third kind of idea and also you gotta remember i, I graduated and i just didn't really have a job and my parents are lovely and supportive but they weren't going to pay for me to live in new york Kind of like not working forever so I, I felt a fair amount of pressure to like get some sort of job that would pay me money i was doing sort of like writing stuff on the side for various um writers around brooklyn actually doing research um, but that wasn't enough to really kind of pay the rent so one thing i applied for was a bunch of union organizing jobs because i've had these like student staff jobs of various kinds um but i got called into one to interview to be a staffer for um an HERE local, and one that I had researched and discovered was like a particularly, that's what I want to use, unreformed, corrupt, mobbed up uh, local that was organizing casinos. Um, and um, like there's some parts of that that can be really fun. Like one of the things about the Greengrisher campaign and then the laundry workers campaign that was sort of overlapping with some of the same personnel was that we would go to hotels and laundry workers campaign and kind of like like um maybe boycotts are illegal so we you know we wouldn't do that but we would just talk to them about like how much their customers might not want to hear about dirty laundry um stuff like that and there was you know you're using all these kind of like you feel like you're in a movie using all these kind of like coded languages uh, language but like there's also some serious seriousness to it like back in the the green grocer days the the they, the the um green grocer bosses had brought in another union um to be the to be the company union basically to say like oh we don't need a new union we have a union and that and it was a totally mobbed up local and the the mobsters kind of followed us around in these like cartoonish trench coats while we were putting up flyers and and one literally threatened to throw me in the hudson river um and like dumb little shit, eighteen year old that I was, I was like, "You're not gonna, you're not gonna murder NYU students over this. Like, you're, you'll be caught. That's a bad idea." That was like my response to him, <laughs> which like, <laughs> like, was true, but like also like, you know, there was a certain sort of uh, what's the word I'm looking for, like, uh, verite, right, about these, about the fact that there really are mobsters in unions, and there still are mobsters in unions, right? I mean. Um, one of the, you know, part of the rank and file strategy is to um, 
democratize the existing unions, right? And so what that's meant historically has been actually a lot of sort of anti-mob, anti-corruption activism, right? So Miners for Democracy, um, anybody's familiar with that story, uh, involved when they started running a, ca a campaign to democratize the, the miners union, they're the initial candidate. Um, Yablonski and his wife were and, and children were murdered in their homes um, in cold blood, right? On, uh, hit put out by by the president of the union. I mean, and that was that was proved. So this isn't some ancient history, right? That was the 1970s. Well, still in New York, this shit still happens. You know, in the Teamsters Union, it was the Genovese crime family that had to be uh, removed from the level of the national leadership, um, and they and others still. Uh, at different points, have have remade smaller moonlighting type cameos in 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 the in the politics of, of, of unions here in New York. So, um, the prospect of working as a staffer in a union like that was not one that I relished, even if I needed money really badly. So, and I went to the interview though because I really needed money, and I remember being really nervous. And I don't usually get very nervous. Um, and I got nauseous. I don't usually get not like nauseated from nerves. So this was a particular kind of experience, and I had to stop myself and say, Kate, self, um, what are you so scared of? Like, what is it that you're scared is going to happen? Are you scared you're not going to get this job? Because you're going to get this job. I was like, oh no, I'm scared I'm going to get this job. And so I just left. I didn't go to the, the interview. I, I walked out of the bathroom and didn't look back and didn't go. And that was the last time I really even... Uh, thought much about trying to be a, a union staffer. Um, so that isn't what happened. Um, <laughs> that was the road not taken. I didn't get called into any of these great rank and file jobs. I also couldn't get a job at Starbucks. I don't know how many times you've ever applied for a job at Starbucks. A lot of my students work at Starbucks. I know it is possible to get jobs at Starbucks, but I have applied to Starbucks dozens of times and never once even gotten a call back. So I don't know exactly <laughs> what that's about, <laughs> but like, I know it's about certain kinds of sorting in the labor market, but I also do take it personally to some extent. Um, so that's not where I worked. I ended up working as a um, staffer and a fundraiser um, at a, an organization called Teamsters for, for a Democratic Union. Really, I was working for the Teamster Rank and File Education and Legal Defense Fund. Can you um, say the name of the organization again? The Teamster Rank and File Education oh. and Legal Defense Fund. Okay. Sorry. Here. I just have to check on our stolen chair. I apologize. Okay. More ethnographic. Um, okay. So where did you get a job? I got a job uh, as a staff person at, um, officially, formally, at the Teamster Rank and File Education and Legal Defense Fund, but that is an organization uh, that's part of uh, Teamsters for a Democratic Union. So um, Teamsters for a Democratic Union is the caucus in the Teamsters Union uh, that have been trying to reform uh, the union for several decades now um, and that's a that's a 501c4 right because they have to be able to run elections and then there's a 501c3 that's the education fund um, so I was a I was a mostly a fundraiser and I was also uh, uh, had the somewhat you know my other title was women's organizer and there was there's was, only so much women's organizing that was actually happening. So um, that was an interesting part of it. But there was actually really some really interesting elements of that aspect of, of the job. And that's what I did uh, for about two years, maybe two and a half years, right out of college. Um, and it was there was a lot about it that was really wonderful. Um, 
So yeah. And TDU is linked to solidarity historically. Yeah, well, it's linked to the. It's linked. We I mentioned way back when the the International Socialists. So actually, it, it was members of the International Socialists that founded Teamsters for our Democratic Union. The other solidarity was not yet a glint in the milkman's eye, um, but many of the same kind of personnel uh, traveled on this this trajectory of, of socialist organization, the development of socialist organization over time. Um, so yeah. Uh, I don't know what else I could say about that. Um, a lot. One of the things that was um, interesting about TDU was really also, you know, it had all this this uh, sort of history you're talking about coming from the IS that I was more aware of before I started working there. But one of the things I didn't learn until I started working there was that the Teamsters and Turtles of Seattle fame, those Teamsters had been a TDU reform local led by Bob Hasegawa in Seattle. Um, and so it was like this thing that had really inspired my own uh, radicalism, my own uh, move from being a liberal to being some kind of anti-capitalist radical um, was, you know, the product of this, of this, of this, this project, right? And, and that's really of the work, what impressed me about it was of the work of a very small number of people. Right, that that had made quite a big difference in this, you know, the way things developed. Right, people, individual socialists and small groups of socialists can't change the sort of big conditions, you know, of history. Right, not not under under uh, conditions of our own choosing, of course. Right, but um, what appeal? What it confirmed for me the idea that this that this rank and file strategy was something a small number of people could do that might have a an outsized impact on the way that the broad the broad trends of, of history develop. So, um, just for example, imagine if there had been uh, Seattle, but there had been no Teamsters of the Teamsters and Turtles, right? And that the Teamsters were instead some fucked up old Hoffa local that didn't give a shit about the environment and didn't give a shit about the WTO. Um, probably it would have been much harder to shut down the meeting. Probably this wouldn't have been uh, the kind of historic moment that it was. It would have been some anarchists throwing rocks in windows and, and some, some environmentalists holding a rally. And I don't think we'd be talking about it right now. Not that many people are talking about it right now. Anyway, but but I am. Um, and so so that sort of confirmed for me. And, you know, I, I even got to, like, meet Bob Pasagawa very briefly at one point, And that was, like, a very cool, exciting moment. Um, and there's a lot of other sort of you know, these little campaigns, right? Because TDU at that point that I was working there was in a very kind of low moment itself in terms of um, the peak of TDU was was the election of Ron Carey. And Ron Carey was able to, to the to the presidency of the union, and he was able to use that platform to actually um, call for a national UPS strike, which was really one of the only major strikes that happened basically during, you know, post post Reagan post Patco in this low moment of, of, of labor movement um, activity, uh, the UPS strike was one of the only ones that actually happened, and it was certainly one of the the only one, as far as I know, at that scale that that won anything. Um, and it was very much this uh, taking on the things that we would come to see as very important aspects of the new shape of work, right? Because it was a strike uh, not just against poor treatment at UPS and things, but also um, you know, against part-time work, right, and, and against the, the normalization and regular, regularization of this kind of, like, part-time 
low wage, no healthcare, no healthcare work that, that UPS was uh, really um, one of the early instigators of, early developers of this kind of model of work. Um, what year was the UPS strike? Don't let me say the wrong year. Um, 1997. Um, so that was, I would make you edit that if I said that shit wrong. Um, <laughs> so, so, you know, I was, I was uh, not around for that strike, but it was, it's very much in the kind of memory of, of TVU then, and I'm sure of TVU now. Um, but when I was working there, we weren't on the, we weren't on the verge of, of winning the presidency again. We were, uh, teams for locals were running, we were running a lot of, there's a lot of TU campaigns in various locals and people would win and people would lose and you'd sort of, the map would shift, right? But it wasn't really seeming to shift in some forward motion. Um, that's since changed, right? The last Teamster election, um, uh, the, the reformers almost almost took power again. So, so, you know, one of the things that people kept telling me when I was a young, impatient person working there was like, well, you don't know things might change in the future. It might seem very dire now, but things might get better. Uh, and I sort of thought they were they were full of it, but it turned out that they that they weren't. They were right. Um, but even in the meantime, there was all these sort of smaller, inspiring, really inspiring campaigns that happened. And one of those was um, Maria Martinez got elected in in Pasco, Washington, to a small Teamster local there that was uh, out of a meatpacking plant. She was a meatpacker, um, and it was a plant that was mostly uh, immigrants, mostly Latina women. Um, and it was really, really dangerous. My actually, my ex was one of the people who had to compile the data about workplace injuries in that particular meatpacking plant, um, and it was really uh, hideous. I mean, just really awful. Um, and but Maria is the sort of person that if you met her, like she just nobody would not adore her. She's just very charismatic um, and really smart, and really uh, you can see why people would want to follow her into all sorts of battle. Um, and so the, 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 the transformation of that local was a pretty inspiring and, and cool and neat story. Um, since of course, uh, that has, that has collapsed as often these little moments of struggle do for various reasons, nothing, not the fault that all of the workers are of, of, of TU folks, but just, it's hard to maintain that kind of high watermark of victory in isolation or without taking things to the next the next level. So there was a lot of things like that that I was that I I really liked, and it was very cool. If you go to a TDU convention, um, as I did, and my job there was to like make dumb powerpoints and telling people to give us money with all kinds of jokes about, you know, really cheesy jokes. Like um, that was a fun. That was a one of my favorite aspects of the job because you just got to be as cheesy as you possibly wanted. And then now I feel like uh, professoring is like. I, one of my favorite parts of the job is I get to tell cheesy jokes and like students kind of have to laugh, um, even if they're not funny. So <laughs> similar to TDU in that way. But um, but it was very cool because you would see people who had all kinds of different sort of social experiences and characteristics, right? Like people from different ages, people with different gender, race, national experiences, but also different, really different kinds of work, right? It might be somebody who's driving a bus for, uh, you know, a outsourced uh, school bus company here in New York. It might be somebody who's a long haul truck driver who lives, um, you know, in, in St. Louis. Um, and people, yeah, ranging from age like 18 to, you know, in their seventies would be, uh, at these things. And, um, it was amazing to see because people would really connect right over the shared experience of trying to organize their workplace, 
Um, and even if people had very different sorts of, I don't know what, what sociology professor types would call like socioeconomic status, right? Or even lifestyle, the kind of shared experience of getting screwed over by your union local or getting screwed over by your boss and then trying to figure out a strategy to, to, to win and fight back was something that did really connect people in, in, in meaningful ways. And, um, you know, we spent a lot of the last year or two or since, I guess, since 2016, hearing about, uh, like, the white working class as this, like, sort of social fact that has all these characteristics that are that are often seen as, like, aspects, right? So the white working class is uh, racist, the white working class is uh, conservative, the white working class is this, that, and the other thing. I mean, I think um, certainly there are lots of people in all kinds of classes who are racist and conservative and backward, but when you saw who are people who are active in the Teamsters Union, which is still a very white union, which is still, and and the power of that union is still very much in the in older workers and people with, um, you know, longer stand, you know, in that first tier, right, of, of labor contracts that most young workers are just not in, right, because of the way uh, union contracts have been misnegotiated um, in the last couple of decades. Um, you don't you don't find that all those people are, are none of that. I mean, TU activists are sort of the the most militant core of that group of people, but they're uh, not just sort of politically thoughtful and open or left wing or something. That's not what I'm saying, but really like open as human beings, right? To sets of experiences that they, you know, that aren't theirs, right? And and you could really you know sit at any table at a at a TU convention and hear people talking to each other about all kinds of stuff. Um, that was a really powerful experience for me in thinking about how organizing really can work in fact, right, to really build bonds of solidarity. We always, you know, talk about this in very kind of abstract ways, but really practically as relationships between human beings, right, and through uh, through organizing and activism. So um, that was one of the things I really loved about you, for sure. How long were you there? Only about two and a half years. I mean, I, I definitely have, you know kept in touch with people at various times and so forth. And, and most recently at Fordham, where I uh, am a member of SEIU local at Fordham, Fordham Faculty United, um, I was standing outside Dealey Hall where my classes are held and where the anthropology department is. And I was smoking a cigarette and contemplating getting on the train. And I overheard some guys talking to each other, some workers talking, building maintenance workers talking to each other. And it was just sort of like the pattern of the conversation made me like, pitch in a little bit to listen and sure enough people they were they were talking about union stuff um so of course my ears perked up and I was like what what's going on over here you know and uh one of the guys heard me saw me eavesdropping and sort of apologized for having said fuck a lot which is hilarious if you know me um and I said oh don't worry about me uh you know I used to I used to be a, a union organizer right and he's like oh what union and then I told him uh and I I said well uh, well, I told him I was a member now of the faculty union at SEIU because I was trying to kind of like scope out the scene and see who they were or whatever. And I said, you know, are you guys in a union? Is there, is there a, a building? And he's like, oh yeah, I'm a Teamster. And I was like, oh, well, uh, yeah, well, maybe you won't like this, but I used to, I used to work for Teamsters for a democratic union. Because of course, Teamsters are very opinionated on this question. If you meet a random Teamster and talk about TDU, they're either going to love or hate TDU. There's no, very few kind of on the fences about it. Um, and so this guy actually then was like, TDU, I believe TDU. And it turned out he was a longtime 
TDU activist who had, uh, um, I had actually somehow never met before, but of course he and I knew a lot of the same people and a lot of the same stories, and we sat talking out there for about two hours, um, which was really cool. Um, and 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 talking about the campaign, the contract campaign we just had as as faculty, and so um, it was a neat thing to kind of see this this thread come back come back in life in a sort of uh, reminder, right, of how somebody who becomes very active and engaged and important in one place can take that to a kind of whole different context sometimes. How did you end up in South Africa? Um, well, that's a whole different thread. So um, I left TDU and went to grad school for various reasons. Um, and when I went to grad school, I went as an anthropologist and I thought I was going to do labor anthropology. I mean, I did do labor anthropology. That's what I thought I was going to do. And I, my, I had two project ideas, one of which was I was going to do an ethnography of port truck drivers because I had anticipated that there were, there were there was likely to be port truck strikes, which turned out there were. I was so right about that. Um, but I abandoned that project because my Spanish is not very good. And I thought that would be very difficult for me to do port truck driver and ethnography with my very crappy Spanish um, in time for when I thought the strikes would be. So that was true. My other idea was that I was going to work at UPS uh, and do an ethnography of UPS because I had this idea that UPS was a kind of particularly sophisticated uh, human resources operation, that they have a very kind of worked out anthropological, sociological strategy for managing workers through, specifically through kind of race class, gender, and sexual, actually, sexuality uh, identities and, and sort of contradiction, conflicts, um, uh, just based on having seen how that works at, at UPS through many UPS workers. Um, stuff like, uh, you know, one of the big fights at UPS is about supervisors working, and this is something that happens all over the country in all kinds of jobs, but basically if you have a supervisor, if they're getting paid a salary, Right, you don't want them doing the work that hourly workers are getting because uh, should be doing because um, they will hire they will have to hire fewer hourly workers, right? And then they can pay the salary person the same amount to do that work or not do that work. Um, and there's often a kind of misclassification of workers as supervisors and so forth. Starbucks is another place that famously does this. Um, so uh, anyway, I had perceived all these interesting things about the way that that particularly that kind of like supervisor uh, misidentification was applied and, and, and used as a management strategy in UPS. And UPS has all this kind of interesting history about race and identity. It sort of branded itself very early on as a, as a pro-black company. And it gives a lot of money to like um, historically black universities. Um, it's in Atlanta, it's headquartered in Atlanta. And I one little fact, uh, not totally widely known, is that the brown, UPS brown, is actually the name of that color is Pullman brown um, from the you know, from the Pullman cars, right? Um, that were the that were the cars where black rail workers worked as porters, right? Um, and which was the origin of you know one of the great rail strikes in in U.S. history. Um, so there's a lot to be said about that. I want to do that naturally. UPS did not hire me for any job that I ever applied for because uh, they somehow saw through whatever my insufficient ruse about my CV was to try to hide the fact that I had worked as a staff person at TVU. So that project was out. But my idea was that I was going to work with a guy called Neil Smith, who was the geographer there in the anthropology department, and who himself had been a truck driver uh, very, very briefly and a, an IS member at one point. So 
he was excited to work with me. We were going to be real Marxists together. And uh, um, I went to go meet Neil to talk about my, actually Neil and I organized a fundraiser for TDU together. It was one of the first things that we did, first things I did at, at grad school. And then I went to go meet him to talk to him about what I wanted to do for my project. And unfortunately he put his hand on my leg in a way that made me suspect that I didn't want to keep uh, meeting him. Um, and that would, you know, if you can't meet your advisor alone without being nervous, it's probably not going to work as a whole advisor advisory relationship. Um, many wonderful things about Neil Smith. That was not one of them. So I, uh, switched advisors and, um, uh, my advisor, uh, then was Ida Susser, who's a Marxist feminist who works in South Africa. She's South African and she's done a lot of, she's done workplace ethnography. She did a bunch of workplace and health ethnography, some in Puerto Rico. She did ethnography of Brooklyn, um, Williamsburg back in the, uh, in, during the fiscal crisis in New York. Um, and also she's done a bunch of, uh, anthropology in, in South Africa. Um, and she and I just kind of clicked in certain ways because one, we both had that kind of shared interest in workplace ethnography and, and Marxist feminism, but also because my mom, um, she didn't stay a cancer doctor very long. When the when when AIDS when the AIDS crisis hit in the eighties, my mom became uh, one of the few experts on on pediatric HIV and AIDS. And so I sort of grew up in this sea of knowing a lot of the sort of scientific facts, but also kind of the medical history and trajectory of, of HIV and AIDS treatment, which turned out to be a pretty useful thing to know if you wanted to do South Africa in uh, do ethnography in South Africa. So I think I think uh, that's sort of how I ended up in that particular uh, place. It was sort of the family business, but it's also the case that um, uh, in addition to being a gender studies minor at NYU, I was an Africana studies minor. Um, and I was always very interested in this kind of uh, how, how I wouldn't say how race and class interact, but how class is raced, right? Particularly in uh, a country like the USA or a country like South Africa. And so there's, there's a lot of thinking through that makes sense or that helps you think through both if you're thinking about the U.S. and thinking about South Africa, because it's sort of this funhouse mirror of, of race and class, right, in terms of uh, black people in the U.S. are a minority, right, and of course in South Africa it's, it's vast majority, right, but there's a lot of the same kinds of, of problems about how segregation has played into work and organizing into politics, um, how and how, you know, the movement for black liberation has, has paid, played into this larger question of class struggle in these two countries. So um, that's what excited me about going to South Africa. Um, and also I just like going places and meeting new people and learning new things and talking to people in South Africa seemed like a pretty uh, far and distant place to go do some of those things. And, 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 uh, and it was, except for, um, I sort of found myself at one point realizing I was spending all my weekends in backyards uh, having a braai, right, which is what they call a barbecue in South Africa, um, eating steak and drinking not very good beer, um, and listening to uh, engineers and cheerleaders talk about their their professional lives. And I was like, this kind of reminds me of, 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 of Texas uh, for being quite so far away from Texas, for being 18,000 miles away from Texas. Um, but that's part of what I liked about it too. I kind of got this chance to like, drive around in my truck listening to Dolly Parton and interviewing people in, in a way that was very different from my life in New York. So, um, so I stayed there for about three years. Uh, I just wasn't ready to come home. So, um, so that's what I did. And, and pretty much every day I wake up thinking I would like to get on a plane and go back to South Africa right now. So the fact that I haven't lately 
Um, it's high time. It's long past due. So, yeah. Is there more you'd like to say about your time in South Africa? <laughs> yeah, a lot happened while I was in South Africa. Um, one, I got to do all this. I mean, the research part was very interesting. Um, a bunch of strikes started happening while I was in South while I was in South Africa and just before I went breaking out in the healthcare sector. So that was very interesting. And I was interested in looking at work, both like paid and unpaid work and how those related to each other. And then I was doing household studies and then like strikes started happening. So I started doing strike studies. I was doing hospitals and clinic ethnography and there's a little, I mean, there's, there's partly why I stayed there for three years because there was a lot to do. Um, a lot of sort of interesting moving parts to all that. But I also made a lot of friends. Um, I met the person that I would eventually marry and I'm no longer married to, um, got married in South Africa during one of my back and fight, back and forth, uh, periods of living there. Um, and I had my daughter while I was in South Africa. She was born in, in Durban, um, in, a, um, in a really interesting hospital actually, um, which was, um, called McCord. And it's actually the first hospital in South Africa that treated black patients. Um, and it was founded by a, an American, a Congregationalist, who was a graduate of Oberlin College. Um, and this is, Oberlin is a very tiny school for anybody who knows it. It's sort of one of its claims to fame is that it's the, the first uh, uh, private college to admit black students, I think, in, in the U.S. It was a sort of stop on the Underground Railroad and sort of the center of abolitionist sentiment and, and activity at various times. Um, and of course, both my parents had gone to Oberlin College, so I myself didn't because I'm a jerk and a rebel and I just don't like to do things that people tell me to do. Um, but I, I felt sort of very cool and proud that like my daughter got born in this like Oberlin College, you know, descended uh, a hospital and one that's now, you know, at that time was like a teaching hospital. Um, it was still uh, totally a, a maternity hospital. Um, and I, you know, I, I don't know if you have a great time doing that, but I had a great time there. It was, it was it was also interesting and I learned a lot. You got to be actually on a ward with a bunch of other people who just had babies um, and like talk to them. And it was like very different than the experience I think most people have in the US these days in terms of how that process looks. But I would not prefer to be like in a private room isolated with a baby. Um, I much preferred kind of being in this space where uh, there was everybody else had just had a baby the same day. And it was neat because like, you look and all the babies look the same. They're exactly the same. They're all kind of doing the same thing. So if you're wondering like, is mine broken? Is it working? Like <laughs> you can look over and you can see now they're all like that, right? It's supposed to be like that. And um, you can talk to somebody and they can reassure you. And some of those people have had children before so they, they have some information. And, you know, we sort of all stayed up all night Googling things and researching things and, and talking to each other. So um, that was a very cool and neat experience. I know for my daughter, she really likes she doesn't really have much in the way of a memory of being in South Africa. She's been back, she was back as a toddler, but she hasn't been back as an older kid. Um, but she's really sort of likes that as an aspect of her identity and her history and um, how she thinks about that in terms of where she fits in in Brooklyn and so forth. So um, those were all things I really liked about it. And I got a lot of support from my friends, um, people that I worked with uh, in some of the clinics that I had been researching in people that I met in the course of my research. I mean, I got thrown multiple like pre-baby parties. Um, you know, people came to visit me every day after my daughter was born in the hospital and every day uh, for weeks really uh, while I was, while I had this little baby. And I got to, to just kind of put her on my back and then go back out into the field and do, do research, which would have been very difficult to do 
something similar in the U.S. I think you know as uh, for work, right? Like how many how many people do we see carrying around newborn babies um, in a on their back at work all day in the U.S. That's not a very common thing, and it would be if you were allowed to do it. I think in many cases, um, but in South Africa, that was just you know, and especially in the context I was working in, um, the idea of telling me not to do that would have been pretty un, un unheard of. So it was it was a cool place to a cool place to be to have to do that little infant parent situation. So. What else about that? It was a wild, wild, wild place. The other, as for a socialist, the weird, weirdest thing about it was that you go there and like all the mainstream politicians like talk about Gramsci and Marx um, and Lenin. And there's like mainstream politicians who are named Lenin because their parents named them Lenin, you know, in the 1980s when they were in the middle of the struggle. And so it's like very different from what the U.S. experience of politics was like at the time in a way that was cool. Um, and people like to talk about politics and ideas in a to a much larger extent than my experiences of sort of random encounters in in the U.S. Um, so those were all things I liked about it and reasons that I kept wanting to stick around. <clears throat> I'm sure I have other things to say about South Africa, but I don't know what they are. Okay. <laughs> you certainly don't have to. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Is, is it, I feel like there's some story that I've told you that you're hoping that I'm going to say now, which I can, but I don't know what it is. Okay, no, 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 not at all. Okay. So what year did you move back to the States? 2000 and... Uh, I was born in February 2011, so uh, that fall is when I moved back, right when Occupy was starting. Um, and so I was carrying tonight around on my back to Occupy meetings, and I kept trying to get on stack so I could speak. And then by the time they would call on me, the baby would be hungry, and I'd have to like get off stack and go feed the baby, and it was like the most frustrating experience of my entire political life. Um, very annoying. Very annoying. And it made me, it poisoned me against the whole... GA model for life. It's unfair. It's unfair to parents. <laughs> Ban it. <coughs> um, that was a funny little moment too, because when Tanai was when we were still back in South Africa, you know, Tanai was born right at this moment of the movement of the squares coming about. Like she almost got named to here because we were so excited about what was happening in Egypt and like. That was a that was a possible name for her, which would have been pretty weird. Um, uh, you know, just doesn't have any other association with her family history on, on either side or anything like that. So it's good probably that she ended up being named Tanai. But it's funny to then think of um, coming back to coming back to the U.S. because yeah, I mean, I guess also Tanai's like first uh, ever demonstration was in South Africa. So even before Occupy happened, she was like an old hand, you know struggle veteran because I, I once went to the university um, to run an errand and happened upon basically a riot uh, that was about to happen. I, it looked like a regular old demonstration to me, so I toddled up there with my baby and some student comes up to me and I was like, no, this is, shit's about to go down. She like collected me, kind of like hid me in this like coffee shop that she thought would be relatively safe and was like, 
don't come out until I come get you. <laughs> so I just stayed there for several hours and it shit really did go down. There was like tear gas, rocks, rubber bullets, like the whole lot in this like suburban campus of, of, of uh, the University of Kuala Lumpur. Um, and then this lovely little, you know, undergraduate student, young woman came in and collected me out of, out of the coffee shop and sent me on my way. And I, you know, that was Tendai's first first riot it was a little terrifying because <laughs> you know three month old babies tear gas is not the best thing um so but by the time we got to occupy you know that's like way low key compared to compared to that kind of thing so um uh it's just funny to sort of think about Tendai being there in that in that in that moment but when I first got back I went and sat down with all my old anarchist friends from from school and we had heard that there was people down there occupying Wall Street right and this is right after Bloomberg built Bill, which was kind of like a good idea, but a flop, right? We were pretty demoralized about the whole state of the movement in the U.S. Wisconsin. That whole tragedy had just taken place. So I was sitting with some old head anarchists, and we're talking about Occupy, and we're all being incredibly dismissive. Like, this shit is not going anywhere. Like, the cops are just going to come clean it out. Like, don't even bother going down there. Like, just, like, <laughs> forget it. And then, of course, what happened is the cops came and busted people's heads, and everybody got really pissed, right? Um, it was put on the front page of several newspapers, right? And it drew a bigger crowd, right, because of that. And then, of course, uh, many of the local units here in New York actually came and supported the occupation and defended the occupiers, which is what made it uh, sustainable, really, as a as an ongoing occupation. That initial kind of, I think, defense of of the occupation by the transit workers, by the teachers, by um, a couple other different. Uh, public sector unions um, and so you know here we are these like sophisticated activists and we completely uh, missed that missed the significance of what was going to happen there with Occupy and the chance that it might spread all over the country and 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 you know lead to calls for for general strikes and occupation supports and things like that um, but it was pretty exciting when it started happening I'm not gonna lie I, I, I came around and thought okay well all right occupiers it's pretty good it's pretty good you were right. I was wrong. Um, there's a there's a, one little funny part about the sort of there's a lot of myths about the origins of Occupy. I think that have been put out. I don't certainly claim to know the true story of the origins of Occupy at all, um, except I do know some of the aspects that are that strike me as as, as mythic. Um, and one of those was one of those is that a, a I was gonna say another anthropologist, a famous anthropologist, David Graeber, um, famous for being a sort of anarchist anthropologist claims in several different places in print that uh, he was among the people who who invented Occupy and that he invented it at this uh, dinner, this regular dinner that was held uh, among anarchists in, in uh, Brooklyn called Grub. Um, now, I don't claim to know whether or not that's true, but I suspect that it's not true, and I've never gotten any confirmation from other Grub attendees that this was, this was how it happened. But I sort of wish it was true because I was one of the people that cooked the very first ever grub uh, dinners in Brooklyn and many of the subsequent ones where I, I was not a very good anarchist because I refused to, to climb into any dumpsters and pull out food, um, but I was willing to cook the dumpster food for people when they delivered it to whatever the various uh, spaces of, of grub were. So if it was true that Occupy had really been invented at grub, then I would feel like I had some uh, claim despite my... <laughs> total wrongness about its about its potential um but i don't think it's true unfortunately i don't think that was really had much to do with it um but yeah so 
that was occupied, I guess. Um, Where were you at around your gender at this time? Oh, relationship to your gender. Um, well, so that was just sort of something that I had spent uh, sort of like all these other things thinking about to differing degrees of explicitness and implicitness. And really, like, when I was at NYU, there really started to be a wave of, uh, a wave of, of really discussion and politics, but also, like, like what's the word I'm looking for? Um, just representation, visibility of, of, of trans people, and especially of trans masculine people um, in kind of, in queer spaces at NYU, but also in some of the in political spaces, right? So there's just sort of this little crop of, of, of uh, a fair number of, of trans guys that um, that came out around then. Um, and that was something that I had been aware of and thought about in various different ways over over the years, but not uh, but like those were definitely the first trans people that I knew of that I met was was at NYU. Um, and one of them was a very good friend of mine who was an activist uh, who I met uh, before he he transitioned, although it's almost impossible for me to remember what that was like now, um, and who was my roommate while he was in the process of transitioning. Um, and during that time, I remember like uh, both having this feeling of like really wanting to support my friend and uh, being part of a group of people that helped organize like you know, a party that we called like his rebirthday party and, you know, buy uh, presents and so forth. And like, especially when people are sort of facing this kind of uh, uncertainty or even just rejection, right, around their gender, we really saw as part of our being friends, but also just like being good radicals that we would, we are supposed to be building this other kind of sociality, right, outside of the family, outside of whatever. And so that uh, supporting people in, um, increasing outness around all kinds of queerness, but especially around trans people, around transness. There sort of started being this little flowering of, of tranarchists, basically, um, in my in my milieu, right? That was all true. And also I felt really um, bad about it. Um, just like, oh, like, how could you just like leave me here like that? Like, like, oh, I'm going to be stuck in this, in this shitty gender and you're just going to run off into this like... <laughs> better gender. That's not fair. Um, and it, it was a very sort of conflicting, conflictual feeling. And, and, and uh, uh, me and Jay ended up having a pretty like deep and intense uh, fight that, that was sort of substantial and, lo and long lasting for, for a while, right? Sort of around this question around, um, there wasn't really any, you can't look back on it now and say, here was the fight about this, here was the fight about this. But it was definitely about both of us trying to negotiate uh, outness around gender and also around also around sexuality. So um, I mostly just felt really abandoned in in, uh, um, in heteronormativity, I guess, um, without much sense of my own agency to like perhaps change that in some meaningful way. Um, so yeah, uh, but it was also so, sort of something that like. Um, And this might have something to do with socialism, or it might just be that socialism was a good vehicle for this sort of self-abuse that, like, thinking too much about your own gender or sexuality and, and putting too much energy into, 
worrying about that or designing that seems sort of individualistic and, and, and luxurious that maybe, you know, real serious uh, organizers and activists don't, uh, don't, have to, don't worry about things like that, right? Um, so I think that was definitely me for a, a lot of, a lot of uh, that whole period. Although I will definitely say one of the things I liked about organizing with Team Surgeon, liked or about organizing, you know, a different moment with like sailors, um, was this sort of like, oh, it's this, it's this very kind of gendered space of, 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 um, uh, yeah, of like male solidarity, boys, boys club. And I sort of was very proud of myself that I could like, um, pack it in the boys club. Right. Um, and, and thought it was a fun, that was a fun environment to spend my time in. Um, uh, which is also, you know, it's contradictory if part of your, your politics is that you're a feminist, right? And you can look at all the ways that these boys clubs operate to exclude women in a labor market sense and a movement sense and a, all kinds of other kinds of sense. Um, socialism itself, I think, was also a kind of like, uh, had that aspect of like, oh, you, if you can make it in the boys club, then you feel like you're, um, that's like, for me, was very validating in lots of different ways. Like, if you can win the debate, if you can uh, not let it get to you, if you can you know, carry on and keep doing the work in the face of whatever, right? Um, it has this kind of uh, gendered, stoic element to it, I think. Um, but like I said, I was also like the anarchist house mom who did all the cooking and all the shopping and like taking care of people. Um, and I spent most of my 20s saying like, oh, I'm never going to get married, sort of out of politics, but also just like out of a desire to not want to go down this one particular path. And I thought, oh, I'm never going to have kids. Um, that seemed like something that sounded wholly unappealing to me in every single respect. Like, like both the process of like that one of the likeliest ways that poor people can have, you know, poorer people, if you can't afford to fucking adopt a child, right. And making a child with your own body is, is pretty much the cheapest, most reliable way of doing this. That part didn't sound very pleasant to me. Um, and neither did the like, having a baby part, like dealing with the babies, you know, like they don't talk, they're not very interesting. They, they require a lot of effort. They don't give a lot back to you. <laughs> like none of that was really very appealing to me, but I did hit a certain moment in my late twenties where, uh, it both started feeling, I started feeling very strongly that like parent was a relationship that I wanted to have, um, with somebody and that this was like a unique, thing that couldn't really quite be replicated in other kinds of nurturing roles, right? Even though I also like that fucking teaching people as a certain kind of parenting or even organizing with people and organizing cross-generationally cross as a certain kind of parenting, which I like. But then there's like parenting a child that you get to raise, you know, from that little larval stage into like a human. And there's a certain kind of relationship that happens there. Um, and I remember thinking a lot when I was in my 20s, like, I would want to do that, but I wouldn't want to be a mom. I was like trying to work out ways that I could be a parent without being a mom. Um, I drew on my own kind of like weird family history to kind of come up with all sorts of complex ways that that might work, including like I had a, a girlfriend for a while and we thought, well, maybe what we should do is have a kid, but we should have a kid with like a, like a, a boy couple. That's one of our friends. And then we would, then this kid would have four parents. Cause I sort of thought four parents was like the right number. Um, that's what I grew up with. That gave my parents every other weekend off, um, to do their own thing. And I thought, well, why should anybody have fewer than four parents? Let's see if we can rec recreate that, uh, that situation. Um, 
turned out it's a little more complicated to create that on purpose than it might seem. And that didn't work out. And I was sort of, there's also like a certain kinds of timelines on it. I'm not saying there's all, there's all one timeline, but I started, sort of started feeling like, okay, if I'm going to write a book, if I'm going to do this stuff, and if I also want to have a kid, I should like have one. Um, so, so I did. And so I decided that, you know, that means I'm somebody's mom. Um, even if that's not really how, uh, my ideal version of parenthood would be. Um, and, uh, well, I got, I mean, I got completely lucky. Like people often ask me like, Oh, do you want to have another child? Um, and I absolutely don't because my daughter, one, it was like, I didn't like being pregnant, but it was, it was very easy pregnancy. Nothing bad happened to me. I was rarely in any pain or sick. Um, she got born fine. We were all fine. She came out like smart, beautiful, interesting. She's only gotten more smart and beautiful and interesting. And like one of my fears when I was pregnant, I don't know if other people have this experience is like, you're there, you're stuck, you're pregnant. Like this is happening. And like, what if you suddenly meet this person and you don't like them? You can't like give them back. That's just it, you know? And like, so it's such a relief when you meet them and you do like them. Um, and especially if you like them more and more over time, but the fact that it worked out doesn't necessarily to me suggest that it's likely to work out as well a second time around on those, on those, um, same, you know, that just seems like dumb luck to me. Um, so yeah, so I, it, it worked out fine. It turned out we still ended up with a weird family organized, you know, in a fairly many, very non-traditional way. And my kid definitely is growing up in a very kind of queer life. Um, and it's amazing to kind of watch her understand people's genders in a way that would have been just totally, wholly unimaginable to me as a kid. I mean, this is just like, on that level, it's just like a totally different world that she lives in than, than people my age grew up in or, or even much, much younger than me grew up in. Um, and so it's one of those things, like always when you think, I mean, I would have said that about sexuality, about being out, you know, and it's common, I think, for, for, for bi people or queer people or whatever to, like, have all these moments where you come out, right, that somehow aren't the whole thing. Um, I think it's probably true for everybody, but I think in some ways gender is more intense that way because the social change is happening so fast, right, in terms of, and, the, and especially the kind of, like, collective culture of how trans people understand themselves is happening so fast and happening so collectively, um, it's, it's hard to keep up with how that actually, like how that actually reflects or doesn't reflect your own particular relationship to it. So you end up having all these, all these relationships of, to moments of, of, you know, the discourse, right. Of, of how these things get defined, um, in 2003 versus how they get defined in, in 2016 or 2012 or 2019. Um, and so your own, or at least for me, I would say my own evolution is, is very, of understanding my, myself and my gender is very much uh, tied to this bigger, broader social social evolution. And it's one of those things, it's, it's, just, it's like a, it's like reading a book backwards or something when you go online and you start seeing like, you know, something has developed, something that was once the the standard way we should all talk about gender um to, if we want to be socially conscious politically correct good queers representing well to everybody else how they should treat us well 
one year later be like, you know, totally transphobic, right? And it's, and it's not that you don't get it, because it's true. Like, it's usually true. You're usually like, yeah, it is. Um, and also, it's like, you know, if you're going to then narrate your story of how you've related to this, well, God, I mean, if I had to go back and repeat all the horrible things I've said about myself and other people in terms of gender and how I understand my own gender, how I understand other people's genders, I mean, like, if I compared that to the standard of 2019 uh, internet trans politics, like, I would be canceled 7,000 times over forever and ever and ever, right? Like, um, you know, it makes, that makes me a little bit sad and worried for younger people that they don't maybe have as much room to kind of, like, have bad ideas or, like, have their bad feelings get expressed as bad ideas and then sort of think through them and work through them and continue having relationships that will work you through different bad ideas um, about yourself and about other people, which we're talking about everybody being trans or everybody being queer. Like, those are the, like, your bad feelings about other people or are your bad feelings about yourself? Your bad feelings about yourself are your bad feelings about other people. So, you know, on the one hand, it's totally amazing. And I, I love the youth of today because they came up with all this um, sophisticated ways of talking about the experience of gender, right? That was just not even a, it makes, it makes how people, it makes how even activists talked about it in the early 2000s seem very uh, rudimentary, I think. Um, so that's amazing. Uh, and on the other hand, like the sort of, I hate it when I hear straight people talking about the sort of like precariousness of call out culture and, and, you know, political correctness on the internet. But I think internal to kind of queer and trans in particular discourse, it really does feel very precarious and very much like things could just change at any time and all of a sudden like this thing is the wrong thing and that thing's the right thing. Um, and you really have to keep up with it to keep up with it. So I don't know, I think, yeah. Um, one part of that story for me that was very important is I came back from South Africa. I lost my political organization. I had an infant. Um, and so I had, I did not have a lot of ability to like exist socially in the world. Um, for a while I was also living alone with an infant, which in some ways was, was preferable to later living with my partner. Um, but in both cases for a number of years, I was pretty like socially isolated and a lot of my, uh, social activity was happening online, right? Both, both in terms of political activity and then also in terms of like queer community. Um, and I wasn't, that wasn't something that I had been in touch with in my youth besides like picking people up on dating sites or something. I wasn't like in queer chat rooms or in trans chat rooms talking to people about gender, but I suddenly met all these young people who had spent basically their entire teens doing exactly that, right? And whose kind of whole uh, experience of, of queer social life and their own gender was invented through these relationships that were, that were online. Um, and those people had relationships with me online, right? So I got to I got to be in that in that world and, and think about um, think about it that way. And so uh, you know I, I in that context looked back on my own experience and thought like, well, uh, you know all sorts of different aspects of my own experience and thought, well, first here was everybody calling themselves non-binary, and I was like, my first reaction to that was like, listen, nobody has a gender, like you think you're uh, ungendered, non-binary, uh, or multiple gendered experiences, like, no, we've been talking about that shit since forever, right? Like, um, 
and I could have, I could and did come up with all kinds of historical examples to, to you know, correct the children on their needless use of this unnecessary turf as a real thing that I did for several months on the internet um, until I finally just gave in. I was like, oh, right, like all the things I'm saying, like that's because, like that's my experience of my gender. That doesn't actually mean that that's everybody's experience of their of their own gender. And that kind of like clicked for me in a way because in my teens, I had spent a lot of time telling everybody they were bisexual because like there's no such thing as like everybody's really bisexual, right? This whole invention of, of heterosexuality and homosexuality is just like, you know, I get that you want that to be true, but you know, fundamentally it's not true. Um, it's like, like, and I, much the same way as a teen, I would have thought, I know people say they believe in God, but they, they can't really, that's not real. Um, and it wasn't until I got much older that I realized, no, like people really do believe in God and people really uh, do experience themselves as, as monosexually homo or heterosexual. And like people really do experience themselves as having like binary masculine or feminine genders, right? And it's not some sort of uh, just statement about my feminist relationship to the world that, that, that has produced, uh, you know, the kinds of gendered friction that I've experienced for most of my whole life. Um, that's not just about being a badass feminist or whatever. Um, but the interesting part about that to me is to sort of see how the same kinds of individual experience and slightly different social settings could turn you either into like a, a 37 year old non-binary person, or they could turn you into like an evil turf troll. Right. Like, you know, like if I had sort of gone down this, let me tell the children that they're wrong um, path, you know, I think there's a lot of people who took that turn and that's how they ended up being like Kathy Brennan. <laughs> like, you know, uh, and there's a lot of there's other examples of this that people have written about and thought about probably better and more extensively than I have. Um, but it's a very interesting for me, it's interesting to think about how that can be true. And it can also be true that like our individual and collective experiences of our own genders are real, right? And increasingly being produced as socially real, right? Like now you can walk around in the world and tell people that your pronouns are they and kind of expect, I mean, people don't do it, but like some people do, right? Like <laughs> some people do, some people ask you, right? Um, that's like on my syllabus for my students. Like that's, if you had told me that just six years ago, that that was not just about myself, but just in general, that that would be the, the world, I would have thought you were, you were fooling yourself or, 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 or lying. Um, and so, you know, it's cool to see it be produced in that way, but also like, uh, there's some sort of like ontological loop there of, about the reality of gender, right? That has to have this internal reality that then needs to be expressed in the world, but then actually creates a social reality that, that reproduces that that internal reality or it could go off in this other totally weird um direction right um of the men's rights activism and and and, and turfism um so yeah so that's that's part of what's been interesting to me and then of course i also get the privilege of living in a kind of uh social and political world where a lot of my a lot of my comrades and friends are 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 trans communists, right? Like a lot of the people I talk to about everything, whether it's gender, sexuality, and politics, or it's like what soap you buy, are all kind of coming from 
what might seem to some people to be a very particular perspective. I mean, I, I actually think it is not a very particular perspective. I think it's a very sort of universalizing perspective um, that applies uh, in a lot of ways to, to many people, but hopefully not in the, the Kate projection of my own experience onto literally everybody way, hopefully more in a, in a, in a, in a worked out uh, political solidaristic way. So I would propose that we um, leave Quit. the last five years of political development to a future interview okay. um, and Red Bloom, and that we close out um, why you telling about um, your decision to do uh, this interview and why, and our conversation about it. Okay, I'm down for that, but I lost the first half of the my remit. I know we're saving five years for later, but and you want me to tell you why I did the interview, but was there something before why I did the interview? And our conversation about doing the interview. Oh, that we had a conversation yeah. about doing the interview. Um, so there was a little bit of, of misreading, because I, I want to remember it right. You asked me um, if I would do an interview. If I, No, what you asked me is, had I thought about doing an interview? And I said, no. And you, I think, interpreted that as me saying, no, I will not do an interview. But in fact, what I was saying was, no, I had not thought about it. But I will think about it. And I thought about it for a while, and I said, okay. Um, and then you asked me, like, why like why did you not want to do it? And I said, oh, well, I thought, you know, I had I had been very enthusiastic about this project since you've taken it up, at least, like, in spirit, if not in, in practice, and had been wanting to do interviews with people. Um, and I, I just really like oral history. I really like uh, community history, and I really like queer people, and I really like talking to queer people, and I really like talking to trans people about... You know, how do people become ourselves, right? I, it's a very interesting topic to me. So that's why, that was my enthusiasm for the project. Um, but no, it had not occurred to me to, that I that I would interview myself or that anybody would want to interview me for this project. And sort of a sense of like, oh, what, you know, how trans do you have to be to be in the, the, the trans oral history project? And of course that gets us into all kinds of uh, ways one might measure that question. Um, but as soon as I, I was, even before I was saying that out loud, I was like, well, that's sort of just, you know, that's, that's one of those experiences of being uh, a trans person or a queer person. I mean, I, I literally posted that about, about just queer sexuality on my Facebook at some point that like, uh, just to remind everybody in the world that like no straight person has ever wondered if they're queer enough. That's not anxiety that straight people have. So if you are a person who's wondering if you're queer enough, you're pretty fucking queer. And I hope that you feel validated by reading this, this, you know, this message. And it was actually, it's funny, we can laugh, but like dozens of people sent me private messages saying like, oh my God, thank you for saying that. That's actually like the most validating thing I've sort of read in my whole life. And I sort of think, you know, the same thing can be said about like, uh, if you're, if you're anxious about not being trans enough, well, it's not really a, a, an anxiety that most cisgendered people would have about their genders that it, that, that or, or even really contemplate, right? Like, this isn't a club that people are sort of, like, applying to to get into, right? Like, um, and there's a certain way in which that set of wondering is itself the, the, the act of, of being trans or being queer. So, um, you know, I knew that while I was saying it. But it's still interesting to think through. And then I also thought, like, I thought of other people who have similar genders to me, both in terms of how I know about how they feel and also how they express themselves. 
And those are all people I had, I had considered interviewing, right? So that's a, that's a totally, uh, that's a mismatch, right? Between that anxiety and who I actually thought was an appropriate person to interview for the project. So, yeah. Wonderful. Any closing words? Um, no, only, uh, that I'm excited because now I really have to do my interviews. And so I'm sort of looking forward to thinking about, um, what questions I'm going to ask the people that I've currently committed to interview. Um, and I'm looking forward to doing that because yeah, talking to people about their life experiences is pretty much my, my favorite activity. Um, and so I appreciate you doing that for me and I'm looking forward to getting the chance to hear some new and unexpected things from old friends uh, in the future. Fantastic. Thank you, Kate. Yep.